Ladies and gentlemen, how do you are listening to the Synapse Films Podcast, a journey into the world of Synapse Films. So buckle up and enjoy the ride. Susie Banyan decided to perfect her ballet studies in the most famous school of dance in Europe. The killer is coming. The killer's gonna get you. I'm just crazy about this store. I've been expecting you. You thought Iron Me was a heavy metal band. <laughs> I'll drink my flavor. Welcome to the Synapse Films Podcast. I am Timo Sabin. Some folks in the horror community know me as Timo. I will be your host on this journey into all things Synapse Films. Greetings, friends, and thank you for listening to another episode of the Synapse Films Podcast. We have a very unique episode to bring you this time around and definitely one that's much more serious than our normal episodes and also lengthier than our normal episodes. But I still hope you find it interesting and fascinating and worth your while. When I first started working on this podcast, and by that I mean when I was just getting the genesis of the idea together, what kind of format are we going to have, are we going to have guests, how often is it going to be released what kind of subjects we'll cover, what pieces and parts of Synapse will we talk about. Inevitably, that thought process just all goes back to the catalog and what films Synapse has released. When I was working my way through the titles, uh, one of the things I was doing was I was trying to look at the titles and kind of fit them with someone I know, someone who I've been on a podcast before with, uh, Cameron Scott was on the Demons episode. He loves that movie. I was on his podcast. I know that very well. Mark Diamond is a music friend of mine. I know his tastes very well also. Well, while looking over the catalog, one can't help but to notice, in my opinion at least, two titles in particular that really stick out. They're different. They stand out alone. I mean, yes, we have the Impulse Pictures, which are more adult-orientated, and then there's the Synapse side, which is a lot of horror, cult, exploitation films, and then here you have Triumph of the Will and Stalingrad. So, of course, that's interesting to me. That piques my interest. What are these doing here? Well, while I was going through that thought process, immediately I thought of my friend Dr. Jamie Raitt from the University of Michigan Dearborn. Dr. Raitt curates the Holocaust Museum at the University of Michigan Dearborn, who more perfect to discuss these films with than Dr. Raitt. So that is what I thought. That is all I thought. So I called Jerry and we're talking about the show and how things are going with me planning the preliminary uh, ideas and things like that. And I mentioned to him, and I want to do a show, a World War II show, because you guys put out Triumph of the Will and Stalingrad. I told Jerry, believe it or not, I actually have an acquaintance, a friend in academia, uh, and told him about Jamie, about Dr. Rape. Needless to say, Jerry's response to me was quite surprising. And when I told that response to Jamie, to say I was shocked is an understatement. And that experience, those responses I got from Jerry and Jamie for me talking about doing this show told me everything I needed to know why Synapse put these movies out. You see, I never asked. 
I never asked, why did you put out Triumph of the Will and Stalingrad? I may have asked Jerry once or twice, why did you put out Mano's Hands of Fate, jokingly? But I never did ask. And what's funny is the first time I asked, you're going to hear me ask Jerry for the very first time, why? But by the time you hear me ask that question of Jerry, I think you're going to already start understanding why for yourself. So, as I stated, this show is going to be unique. It's going to be different. And I 100% promise you this. If you listen to this episode from start to finish, I promise you, you're going to learn something. You're going to hear something you've never heard before. You're going to learn something that you never knew before. And not just about World War II, Nazi Germany, Stalingrad, but you're going to learn something new about Synapse Films and Jerry himself. Now, this episode is longer than our normal episodes that we put out, but I think that the information contained in this is very, very important and worthwhile to listen to. Now, I know World War II and the Holocaust is a very delicate subject, and I did my best to treat it with the respect and care uh, that it needs to be treated with. So, as I said, this episode is unique, and one of the unique things about it is normally on every episode we start talking with Jerry Chandler. Uh, Not this episode. This episode, we are going to first uh, bring in our guest, Dr. Jamie Wright. We're going to discuss both films, Triumph of the Will and Stalingrad with him. And then we're going to bring in Jerry, and then Jerry is going to talk about uh, the films and how they landed in Synapse's catalog and the process uh, that they went through in order to get the titles and reaching that decision to be the company to put these titles out. So let's jump in and start untangling this yarn that is the journey of Triumph of the Will and Stalingrad into the catalog of Synapse Films. Like to welcome to the show from the University of Michigan Dearborn, Dr. Jamie Rates. Hello, Jamie. Hi, Tim. How are you? I am doing wonderful. Thank you so much for being here. And this is a different kind of podcast for Synapse Films, obviously. But what better person to talk to? Tell everybody listening what you do at the university and why it is basically you're here talking to us about Triumph of the Will and Stalingrad. Okay, well, thank, thanks, Tim. And first, thank you for having me on. I'm very honored to be chosen to talk about this stuff. So my, my position at the University of Michigan-Dearborn is I am the director of the Voice Vision Holocaust Survivor Oral History Archive at the university there. And I'm also a lecturer in, history, in the history department where I teach courses on the Holocaust, military history, world history, British history. I've recently started teaching a course on Jack the Ripper. So I've, um, as a lecturer, you tend to kind of teach a lot of different subjects. Mm-hmm. So don't, uh, my specialty area is the Holocaust in Nazi Germany. So Gotcha. And in the interest yeah. of full disclosure, uh, uh, Dr. Rate grew up with my old podcast partner, and I met him uh, through doing that podcast, and we helped you a little bit with your Jack the Ripper class discussing yep. that from a film standpoint not from historian just from a film historian standpoint and we and i also uh, talked to you about the movie conspiracy which was yep. a world war ii film uh, for your class as well so we've had some history together discussing these movies and for podcasts and things like this and lectures so 
that's how we know each other. That's why you're here. So, two movies here that Synapse has put out. Triumph of the Will and Stalingrad. I want to start with Triumph of the Will uh, because it's pre-war. It's clearly a propaganda right. film put out by the Nazis, uh, directed by Lenny Riefenstahl, who was a, a really well-known German actress and filmmaker in pre-war Germany. And we're going to talk about, to kind of backtrack, we're going to talk about the movies, the significance of them, and why we're still watching them today and why we should be watching them today and things like that. So Triumph of the Will, uh, and you correct me or jump in when need be, so it's a it's a filmed 1934 rally for the Nazis, right, the party, correct? Yeah, party was, rally at Nuremberg. Yes, and so this these things weren't like a two hour event, right? This was like what six days of yeah, it was a multi day event. Yep. So so basically, it was six days of rah rah rah. The Nazis, the Nazis are great. Rah rah rah, and and a lot of parades, right? They were big on, they liked to have a, a, the parades. And, you know, Hitler was very into the spectacle of everything. So you see those big, wide shots that Riefenstahl uses of the stadium and of Hitler. You know, even that opening shot is, is so uh, charged with symbolism, you know, mm-hmm. as Hitler comes in, flies in out of the clouds like an angel landing to save Germany, right? Mm-hmm. So you see that. So yes, lots of pomp, lots of lots of big, big scenes, lots of big rallies, uh, those kinds of things, and and that was you know part and parcel for kind of the whole Nazi uh, the way they wanted to be viewed. Right. So it's an idealized version of the event. If you really, really want to push the the Nazi propaganda machine, absolutely. It's it's widely you know I'm sure people know. But it's widely seen as, 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 you know, just an absolute propaganda masterpiece. And it's funny because Goebbels didn't like it, did he? No, but to see, that's the thing, too. There's always a lot of infighting going on in the Nazi party. It gets worse after the war. But even 34, 35, and, and we'll, I'm sure we'll talk about the Night of the Long Knives, mm-hmm. right? So there's lots of things going on, especially the Night of the Long Knives with the SA, the Sturmum Tylung. They had been purged uh, a few months prior to the rally. So in June of 34, uh, they had become kind of a threat to Hitler's power base for a couple of different reasons. Um, And so this was kind of the the post-purge party, right? So, you know, when Hitler had come to power in 33, he kind of has to do a few things, right? So first of all, he has to consolidate his power. He's not... He doesn't come in in 1933 on January 30th and take over everything right away. It's mm-hmm. not like an overnight takeover of power, what they call the Mach der Greifung, the, the, the takeover of power, or the seizure of power. Mm-hmm. He has a few things he has to do. So first of all, he has to consolidate his power, which he does actually relatively quickly because of events with the Reichstag fire and a few other things that kind of allow him to implement these emergency measures that were actually legal under the Weimar Constitution. They were written into the Weimar Constitution. And, you know, and as you, I'm sure you know, Weimar was the kind of the, uh, the regime that preceded Hitler. It only lasted from 1918 to 33, and then that was done away with as well. So that was prob- pretty much like the World War I, or was that the post- 
It was post World War One. Okay. So at the end of the war, at the end of the war, the military leadership, um, which had been kind of running the government for for the Kaiser, the, the emperor, who had kind of just been told to go to his country estate and we'll take care of everything, had basically signed the armistice with with the Allies, and then they just said, "All right, we're out of here." And they kind of handed the reins of power over to civilian government. The Kaiser abdicates, and you have this new civilian government called the Weimar Republic. It's Germany's first attempt at constitutional uh, democratic government, and it doesn't last very long. There's lots of reasons for that we could go into. We don't really have to here. Right. Um, well, so so that government was in place, but then the Nazi the Nazi Party was rising to power against that government that was in place. I'd like you to explain a little bit because the Nazis are called nationalist socialists or national socialists. And that, that sounds like an extreme combo meal of the extremists (laughs) here today, like combined. And in reality, I guess uh, it would be mostly Hitler's point of view, but it really is an extremist version of both wings combined if you can even call it a coherent ideology, I guess. I think it was, and I think where people get tripped up on the socialism part is they that immediately comes to mind as being a left-wing, right, kind of far left towards communism. But from the Nazi perspective, that socialism was actually kind of a form of what they call, and I'm no economist, but the economists call it statism, S-T-A-T-I-S-M, which is just... Basically, I don't even not total control of the economy by the government, which I guess is socialism. But um, you know, it's 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 a point where they they begin to co-opt all the major industry, kind of under government control, to switch it to kind of a war setting, gotcha. right? So what you see is you then begin to see all these big businesses. Not right away, because they're hedging their bets, too, mm-hmm. on, on whether or not Hitler's either going to take power or then after taking power, how long he's going to be in power. Right. And what kind of power that is. But by 34, 35, he cemented his his rule over Germany. And most of the big corporations in Germany at the time kind of jump in bed with national socialism. And that's kind of the socialist part of it. I, I've never, you know, like I said, I'm not an economist but it, it's really it's it's government control of industry, but it's not like what we think of with communism. That's what it seems so, like to me too. I hear that every now and then. I just wanted to kind of clarify that a little bit that the Nazis were their own thing. <laughs> you know, they right. were their own insanity basically, and that this is a little different. So, so now this film itself, the Triumph of Will, what I find fascinating is that this is almost like Hitler in a movie form trying to take all of. He's just come to power. All the, all the dust hasn't really settled yet. And he's basically there kissing butt almost in a way and, and rah-rahing the country to get behind him because he needs everybody. It's not like he's yelling at everybody what to do. He's basically saying, follow me, follow me. This whole film, to me, I don't want to say reconciliatory or not, like a, like a, like a reconciliation or anything. But it mm-hmm. seems to me like he's trying to get everybody on board in this movie to move forward with his plans. Is that? Am I reading that wrong? I, a little bit, Tim. And okay. I only say that because I think by the time the, they have that party rally in '34, mm-hmm. uh, he, he's pretty much cemented most of his power at, at the higher. You know, and we can go back. I think maybe we, this would be a good time to kind of go back just a little bit and talk about the takeover power and kind of where Ernst Rome and the SA fit in, because I think that is 
really a key part of this story about this movie and why it was made and how it came about. So Hitler, as yeah, he's the head of the leading, the, the biggest party in Germany, in Weimar, Germany, at the time. See, the thing is, Weimar politics is they had been kind of under a semi-authoritarian regime since Germany was founded in 1871, okay? It was never a, a pure democracy. It was an empire. It had a king or a kaiser, an emperor. And um, so when, when the, the civilian population or the civilian politicians come to power and, and they form the Weimar Republic in, in 1918 after the war, the constitution they write is probably too democratic, Mm-hmm. In the fact that it, it calls for uh, a majority of seats in, in the parliament, the Reichstag, which had under over 600 seats, okay? Mm-hmm. So think of, like, the House of Representatives, but not quite twice the amount. Right, okay. Mm-hmm. And to pass legislation, and then the chancellor was usually chosen from the biggest party in the Reichstag, whoever had the most seats. Gotcha, okay. Or co- they, would, they would form coalitions. So... After the formation of the Weimar Republic, think of this this democracy where it's almost too democratic. It's very difficult to get any kind of majority in such a large, you know, and we're talking a place where there's 40 political parties from major ones to little dinky ones. But they all draw these little votes and siphons and siphon votes here and siphon votes there. So after the Weimar Republic is formed, it, it actually works for the first I don't know, 10 years, if we want to say 18, 28, 20, still 12 years with some hiccups. But it works because they're always able to form kind of a right center coalition in the in the Reichstag. Okay, with kind of more uh, conservative uh, members from the center, what they call the Catholic Center Party. And then like a little bit of the Socialist Party. And then a little bit of a little bit more far, far not, and not what we would think is far right groups, but more conservative groups. Mm-hmm. Okay. okay? Mm-hmm. And this coalition works. And it works because of a couple things. Uh, number one, after 23, so we have the high inflation of 23, which kind of basically ruins the German economy. They put this, this coalition kind of stays together because it was able to, because people wanted stability. They were getting stability, uh, post-war Germany, things like that. The, the, the big knock on the Weimar Republic and why it didn't last were two things. Number one, it was too democratic. And number two, nobody really wanted it to work. It was assailed from lots of different sides, from the right and the left, from the not National Socialists all the way to the far right, to the Communists all the way to the far left. But as long as this center coalition held, things were okay. And after... 1923 when you had this wild inflation that kind of ruins the german economy the first time you have the united states under a guy named dawes pumping loans low interest loans into germany to stabilize it so weimar is running off of this small center coalition and loans money pumped in by the united states for basically that's it right so after after 23 24 the 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 economy stabilizes Things get to kind of back to normality. It holds together till 1930, but then the Great Depression, which starts in the United States in 29, finally starts hitting Germany in 1930. The United States begins to call its loans back because they need the money, right? All these banks want all this, this things that the Germany didn't think they were going to have to pay back uh, in large chunks for quite a while. They suddenly want their money back. 
So depression hits Germany. This is all the, uh, in the background of this too. There's the humiliation of the defeat of World War One and how right. I guess they they feel like they got a raw deal. Uh, at the end right. of it, and and so the, yeah. this is all in the background where they're they're ticked off. I mean, they feel like like okay, we get it, but you're still it's kind of hard to say that these people that kind of started a war is <laughs> you know feel bad or upset because of the way they're treated when they lose. But that's that's going on in that country. There is a which is I think right. why that nationalist type thing starts boiling up. Correct. Oh yeah. During all absolutely. this economic stuff and political stuff going on, right. Right, right. So the 1923 kind of hyperinflation that happens is a direct result of the Treaty of Versailles, which okay. ended the war. The Germans thought they were going to go to the peace table and have kind of a just and equitable negotiated peace. They mm-hmm. were, after all, in the German mind. You have to remember, they were still on French and Belgian soil, and they had already, they had just annexed or were getting ready to annex huge parts of what was now the Soviet Union under the Treaty of Brest-Litovsk. So in their mind, you know, they really weren't, from the normal German's mind, they weren't losing the war. Now they were going to lose. It wasn't going to last much longer anyway. And the people at the top knew America had come into the war. And, and so, yeah, when, when the Germany signs the armistice in 1918, they expect they're going to get this kind of, you know, and this is what all these peace treaties had always been like since, you know, back to Napoleon. Mm-hmm. Right. Napoleon conquered all, almost all of Europe. Mm-hmm. And then they captured him instead of executing him or punishing France or doing anything. They just they just send him off to an island, right? And France is kind of welcomed back into the family of nations. And I think a lot of people in Germany thought that's what was going to happen. Well, what happens is it's an absolute punitive peace. The British, the French, the Belgians bore the brunt of World War One and the destruction, and they decided that Germany would cause the war. They started the war, and Germany was going to pay for the war. So right off the bat, Weimar itself is destabilized from a financial perspective because they have to pay back all these reparations. We're talking billions of dollars. Mm-hmm. And and they had managed to keep the payments up until uh, probably 22, 20, well, 23 for sure. They default on the payments. And so what happens is France and Belgium march into Germany into this place called the Ruhr, which is their kind of industrial area. And they take, they say, basically, you're not going to pay us, so we're just going to take it out of the ground. We'll take your coal, your steel, all that stuff. You know, what you can't give us the money, we're just going to take in kind. So that happens, and then the Weimar government, because they don't want to uh, aid France in doing this, basically pays the German workers in the Ruhr not to work, to go on strike. So that causes that first financial uh, hyperinflation, and it wipes out most people's savings. And this is, uh, you know, and I think this is in many ways kind of a key event in turning people more towards Nazis. Gotcha. Yeah. Okay. Because that's, that I, I think sense. people do get get confused. Like they, you always hear, how does a whole population, you know, it's like, well, maybe it's not just one thing. It's a bunch of different things that are pushing it's a, people. It's a bunch one, of things. Yeah. Yeah. It is a bunch of things, and it, it also has to do with fear of communism. So, sure, sure. you know, German Socialist Party comes back after World, World War One, comes back strong. And, you know, and the way I always explain to my students when I talk about Weimar and why people ended up voting for the Nazis or supporting the Nazis is because it's a simple thing. When people, uh, when there's financial hardship, when there is political turmoil and upheaval, people move to the extremes of either end, depending on what your proclivities are, right? I guess you could say. So you had a lot of people going 
and there were attempted coups. There were attempted uprisings in Weimar by the communists. Uh, they took over Munich in, I think, 1918. Uh, there was mutinies of the sailors in Kiel. Uh, I think that was near the end of the war, you know, and those were all left-wing kind of more communist attempts. But then you have like the, the 1923 putsch attempt by Hitler and the Nazi party to take over the government. So the government itself is kind of beset from left and right by, by groups that want to see its end and groups that aren't so left and right. People that had supported the old um, Kaiser, the old monarchy, they didn't want the Weimar, they wanted the monarchy back. So you have all these people that want to see the, the republic fail, and then you have these two kind of major financial upheavals in the middle. Let me, let me stop you real quick and kind of put it in today's terms. So there's a lot of, there's a lot of uh, distressing issues, and a lot of people just want things to end. They just want calmness. They just want things to go back, quote, the way they were and stuff. And so it sounds to me like in Germany back then, there was so much upheaval that people were just wanting some sort of stability. It, that's exactly it. Okay. And okay. At, at the end of the day, Hitler doesn't seize power like he tried to in, at the putsch. That's not a revolution. It's not right. a revolt. Right. The government itself is forced to pick somebody that they think can can get the support of the people so they can have the government work, mm, right? Mm. So they can pass legislation. Hitler is the head of the, uh, the biggest party by that point in Germany, but there's also a big push from the communists. And I think mostly in Germany, people, and he wasn't voted in, right? He was appointed by the president at the time, uh, Hindenburg. By now, Hindenburg's in his 80s. He had been a war. He had been actually been one of the military leaders that ran Germany during the war. Mm-hmm. Okay, he was very now, popular, right? Yeah, he was very popular. Yeah. But, you know, he's <laughs> he's in his 80s. Sure. He's not really phys- mentally all there anymore. Right, okay. And he's kind of cajoled into by these conservative ministers, not, not Nazi ministers, but more people who wanted to see a return to the old empire and things like that. This, we'll bring him in as chancellor. We can control him, okay, and we can use him as the popular face of what we want to do. And they thought they were just going to bring him in, use him, and then dump him. Well, he turns the tables on him, okay? And he's basically, he's appointed chancellor, which gives him governing power. He doesn't even have a majority, though, like in the cabinet or in the Reichstag. But they thought they could bring him in, and this this would be kind of, they were going to control him. They could do what they wanted. He'd be the popular face. And then events happen after he's he's appointed chancellor so immediately february 1933 the reichstag building burns down um that would be the that would be the equivalent of burning like uh, congress down capitol hill and it gets blamed on a communist a dutch communist uh marinus van der Lube, Lube. um and we don't know for sure that he did it he was mentally not really with it i don't, I don't he was he could be he could be a patsy he, he could have been a patsy, and lots of people have theorized that actually the Nazis burnt it down themselves as an, an excuse to increase their power. Right. Whoever did it, it works, because within a month, they have basically uh, the, the Reichstag and, uh, passes what's known as the Enabling Act, which gives Hitler basically dictatorial power. It gives the government dictatorial powers. So they suspend basic civil freedoms, no more habeas corpus, things like that. No more parties, right? The name of them. No more political yeah. parties. It's only one party, right? It's whatever right. They their party They get rid of the trade is. unions. Yeah. They get rid of 
So, you know, within a couple months, most of his political, Hitler's political rivals are done away. Okay, now right where you're at right now, and his, now how, how far before the week, the six days of Triumph of the Will was filmed? Are we talking like a couple months before this rally? Are we talking days, year? Because so, I uh, want to get no. people in the mindset of like this rally. Yeah. Like, where were these people? They're all like was- fawning over Hitler and stuff. Like where was that right. at? Yeah. So the, the Reichstag fires in February of 33. So just, you know, he's appointed chancellor January 30th, 33. So within a month, a month and a half. And by March of 33, they've signed this enabling act. And that's when the crackdowns begin. So before the rally, it's a good, it's a good year. Gotcha. There's something too that I never realized. I'm not an, I'm not a dummy. I'm an educated person. <laughs> you know, and I've been I've been seeing these black and white films, and I've been seeing shots from his triumph. Well, we've all seen them over the years mm-hmm. when when you are watching television or something, and they're, they're discussing Hitler. You see him yelling with his fist in the air and stuff, and it's a lot of stuff. And you see all the marching and stuff. This is what I did not know, Jamie. And I would like you to speak on this because this is something probably the one thing that really stuck out in my mind, like. How do I not know this? And that almost scared me that I didn't know this. If you watch Triumph of the Will, folks, and everyone knows all the visuals of all these marching people in the streets and and all this militaristic stuff, uh, there's not one military soldier in all of those. There's only like five minutes or something of military footage in Triumph of the Will, and it's the cavalry, the horse guys. The guys on the horseback and stuff, those people marching in the streets are Nazi party members at the time. Right. At the time, at the time of Triumph of the Will was filmed, the people, if you look carefully, they're either holding spades or shovels, they're holding swords, but you don't really see they're dressed in military style gear, but they're not military people. So what you're seeing are just Nazi party members marching goose step. Well, here's two reasons for that, I think. Okay. Number one, the the provisions of the Versailles Treaty limited the number of German military, the size of it, to 100,000 men. Mm -hmm. So when this rally is filmed in 34, the military is still very small. Mm -hmm. The official military. The official military. It's not until 35 when he openly begins rearming Germany. Mm -hmm. Number two, by 34, you you have moved into a one-party state. Okay, he's outlawed all the other political parties, or even if they're, I mean, basically, yeah. The only political party that matters in Germany is the National Socialist German Workers Party. So you have people in Germany who may not have been true believers, okay, but who joined the party for other reasons, uh, career reasons, right? Opportunistic. Opportunistic, Mm. business reasons. I mean, it was a way to... It's like joining the, 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 the Chamber of Commerce, right? Except it's the Nazi Chamber of Commerce. The, and the Nazis had, prior to taking power, had built up these organizations within the party itself. Okay, so the National Socialist, uh, you know, German Workers Business Association, the National Socialist Doctors Association. Yeah, they actually the made a separate, like separate groups alongside the regular German groups. Like you're saying, like if you had like a labor union, they had their own labor union. They they did. Yeah, and there was the were, theirs were more militaristic, yeah. and they were getting rid of what was basically labor unions, and they were militarizing them. 
Yes, they said, okay, there's no more labor unions. You have this National Socialist Labor Front. You join that. Now, you know, we all know when we think of labor unions, we think kind of left-wing politics, right? Yeah, sure, sure. But, you know, this was a labor union without the left-wing politics. If that may, And it, it, union is a, is a very loose term here because there was no guarantees for worker safety or – especially after they begin rearmament. I mean there's – the idea that you're going to work a 40-hour work week in the factory building airplanes is a joke. You're going to work however long they tell you to do it, right? So you And you have all these organizations built up over the years, and then when they take power, a lot of these organizations just meld themselves on top of old organizations or combine them. And they're, they're, Yeah, they're basically becoming one militaristic entity, the Nazis, you know, which it, it, you can right. almost see it. From afar, looking at it now, you can almost see it happening. I always yeah. thought that, so not always thought, but I thought watching this that I'm seeing that. I'm seeing this, a part of that that melting together to, to create what terrorized the world for the next decade plus after this. Um, now, so... When you, so when you see these marching people, these are the National Socialists. That's the Workers' Union or whatever. Like that's the those right. the guys the with the spades. Front. Yes, the guy with the spades yep. instead of rifles. They're doing everything. Mm-hmm. They're being trained in military in, in military ways. Yet they're holding a spade instead of a rifle. I never noticed it. Never. I thought I just assumed those were all soldiers, and and they eventually became. I know they all kind of. It all fell together and they all became that. But at the time you're seeing this, that to me is mm-hmm. what's important because this film yeah. is a time capsule. We see it as something with the, with the knowledge of World War II, with the knowledge of where the Nazis went with this, with the knowledge of the concentration camps. But not then. This was different. This was – mm-hmm. and, and I agree with you. They were basically saying, oh, uh, uh, we don't have an army. Those are farmers. Well, Those well, are farmers. I mean, they weren't they weren't allowed to. Now they were right. training in secret. Actually, they they were training pilots in secret in the Soviet Union of all places, right? And so, and that's how they would get them started. They the National Socialist Glider Corps, right? You joined, you learned how to fly a glider. Okay, well, you you're now basically already trained on how to fly an airplane. It's just another easy step on how to become a, a fighter, an airplane, you know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm, a fighter mm-hmm. pilot or a bomber pilot or whatever. Sure. So they did these things, you know, there was always this aim, I think, at the end of the day, at least from the military perspective, that that, that this was what, you know, was going to happen. The Holocaust, that's a whole different story. So now we're at the rally. We're at the tri- – so now you, we have a pretty good uh, – or at least a, some understanding of, of the turmoil and the, and the unrest and everything that was going on up until the Nazis took power, up until Hitler took power, up until we have this rally. But there is something that you brought up before that I don't think we, we pushed on. That a big part of this rally – was, mm-hmm. was a result or at least the content of what Hitler was saying in this. And some of it was very coded, of course. Mm-hmm. Like there are, there, there, we had to purge. He uses those words like, you know, things out of our party that were weakening it and stuff. It's a direct right. comment, if I'm not mistaken, and that's why I'm asking, on what is known as Night of Long Knives. And this has something to do with Ernst Rome, who was the right. head of the Nazi brown shirts. Because there were different factions yes. that you're seeing marched, and we're seeing it in black and white. So I think it's kind of hard to see the different color coded, yeah. you know, deals and things. So explain that a little bit. How that how that worked its way in 
big time into what Hitler was saying at those speeches to give a little context sure. to what he's saying. Okay, so this is another one. I'm sorry, and I'm sorry to the audience that we have to keep like going back. This is the problem with being a historian. <laughs> you can't just pick something out in 1934 and go, yeah, this happened, because there's always a backstory. I know, right? I know, yeah, yeah. So yeah, so the, the Sturm ob Teilung, the essay, the brown shirts, the stormtroopers, mm-hmm. right? This is what people call them. Mm-hmm. Uh, they were the kind of the paramilitary wing of the party. That, and they went back way prior to before the seizure of power, before 33, all the way back to the putsch of 23, the attempted takeover. And they were the group that like, so when Hitler or other Nazi speakers would be out doing rallies or whatever, you know, these were very, these days in Weimar had a lot of political violence, not, there was assassinations and, and things, but it was more so like Hitler's speaking at this beer hall today, Nazis would go, people would want to hear him, but then the communists would come and there'd always be a fight. Right. Right. So the brown shirts, the SA under Rome were kind of his, I mean, not even his personal bodyguard, because that's a whole nother group. Like but henchmen they almost? They were the paramilitary wing. Yeah. What's that? Like henchmen almost? Yeah, they, they were the protection. They were the muscle. And and that that became kind of a thing, you know, for young adventurous people to do. I join them. You know, I, I, I'm out of work or whatever. I'm going to join the SA. I get a uniform. I might get some food, maybe a little paycheck. And you get to beat up communists. You know, when you're, you know, and, but the communists, they had their own organization. That, that was the same thing. So don't think that this is just the Nazis. I'm not making excuses for the Nazis, but. Right, right, right. You know, communists had, had their stuff too. And these, they would fight out in the streets. There were plenty of jerks um, to go around. And plenty of jerks. <laughs> organized <to go> jerks <laughs> going around. Organized like, jerks. And there was a lot, I do know there was a lot of street fights for different organizations and stuff. Yeah. And mm-hmm. so basically they were the goons. Yeah. They were the, they were the muscle, right? They were the heavies. So that organization within the Nazi party begins to grow exponentially, right? It's adventurous. Ernst Rome, who is the, the head of it, he's the, kind of this international military adventurer, you know, and it, he's kind of charismatic and young people flock to him. And it's this very m- masculine thing, and which is interesting because Rome and much of the higher leadership of the SA were homosexual mm. or at least bisexual. That's neither here nor there, but I, I think it's ironic in many ways. So anyway, long story short, the organization itself begins to grow and grow and grow, not to the point where, well, maybe to the point where it rivals Hitler's power. Okay, and there's all sorts of power struggles going on. So he's Hitler threatened. Hitler's threatened basically by this. Hitler's threatened by them, and also Rome and the brown shirts tended to push or emphasize the socialist part of national socialism more than the nationalist part. So they were a little left wing too. So after Hitler takes power, I said before, you know, he had a couple things he had to do to consolidate his power. So get rid of his political rivalries, stabilize the situation. He's able to do that, but he has to get respectability. Okay. He's viewed by many in Germany as, you know, this rabble rouser kind of funny guy with a weird mustache who would get up and scream at the top of his lungs and and Hitler very much wanted to portray the party as now very legitimate okay we are the governing party those revolutionary days are past us the problem is is for for Rome and for Hitler is that the brown shirts the SA still very much represented that past okay of street brawling 
revolution, et cetera, et cetera. You know, number two, every good dictator has to have the support of the military, right? Mm -hmm. Rome and the brown shirts wanted to, to replace the German army as the kind of armed forces, the armed wing of the German state. This is a threat to the, the German army, which is still run by and large by the Prussian uh, nobility. So anybody that has that V-O-N in front of their name, von Schleck, you know, whatever, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. that usually denotes that you're Prussian noble, nobility. So if you look at the general staff of the German army at the time, they all have the vons in front of their name for the most part. Gotcha. They don't want anything to do with Rome and these guys, even letting them in the army, let alone letting them become the army. So Hitler is really faced with a choice. Okay, he wants to, he wants to get rid of this image of them being this awful revolutionary, violent party, etc. At least on the face. Of this. Sure. Rome and the and the SA are saying, I don't think this revolution that you just had with becoming the chancellor uh, went far enough. We want to push it even farther. We want to start moving against the aristocracy that's left, and we want all their stuff, and we want to take over the army. And Hitler's like, all right, well, first of all, I need the support of the army. Second of all, I need the support of the aristocracy because most of the aristocracy were also very intertwined with German big business. And number three, I don't want to say, but I was always taught, and maybe it's not correct now. Uh -huh. In many ways, Rome and the homosexuality was an embarrassment. Okay. It was kind of an open secret. So Hitler had lots of reasons to want to get rid of Rome and the SA. So what he does is they, he sends them off, or they decide they're going to have this big guy. I always refer to it like a conference, right? So they're at this big resort outside of Berlin. Hitler sends in his personal bodyguard. Now, I said before, that was a whole other organization. They were called the SS. Mm -hmm. Okay, the uh, Schutzstaffel protection squads. Mm -hmm. They were under a guy named Heinrich Himmler, who you will now, after 34, hear a lot about Nazi Germany. Right. So, um, so let, me, let me stop you real quick right there, and I don't, don't, I don't want to break train of thought or anything, but so this is something no, no. else that's very, that seems to be kind of uh, uh, smoothed over a little bit that we just see these, this entity called Germany and, and Nazi Germany. You had the SA, the SS. Mm -hmm. And then you had regular mm -hmm. army. You didn't have mm -hmm. just one thing, especially back then. So, so nope. uh, Himmler was the SS. That was yep. that was the bodyguard. And then yep. Rome was the head of the SA brown shirts, correct? Which correct. was so more SS of the general goon goon squad for the party. Yes. Okay. Himmler saw the SS as very much as an elite guard. So essentially, the night of the long knives, uh, June thirtieth, I think it was thirty-four. The SS goes out and arrests the leadership of the SA. Says that they have information that they've formed a plot to overthrow the government, and they're essentially lined up against walls and executed that evening or the next day. So the SA never goes away after that, but it's a shell of itself. Some people keep their SA credentials. But what you see then with the Nile of Long Knives, you get rid of Rome, you get rid of the threat from the SA, you get the support of the military, and you begin to see the ascendancy of Himmler and the SS, which is going to become the paramilitary wing of the entire state to the point where it's going to run all the security services, all the police, all, everything like that. And it's going to be the SS under Himmler that basically is going to undertake and carry out the Holocaust.
So the rally at Nuremberg, like you said, is in many ways about celebrating the party and its achievements and everything it had done since 33 and consolidating its power. But it's also about showing that they have gotten rid of Rome, gotten rid of the SA. Okay, they purged the party and that they were now more respectable. And this this movie, this message was played constantly up until I mean this was 35 I guess it was actually released and it, yeah, it played almost constantly to the end of World War II in Germany. So people were uh, yeah. pounded this always mm-hmm. they were, it was always available to go see. I do believe it was a pretty big hit in Germany. I- yeah. <laughs> uh, well, part of that too was that, you know, Hitler hiring Lenny Riefenstahl to direct this was kind of a big deal. She did a lot of, they did a lot of like movies like SOS Iceberg and things like that. She was almost an action star in a way. Okay. Um, so, you know, interesting, but I know they used like, like, I don't know, it was like 30 cameras uh, and 120 technicians. On this film, if you watch the film, if you see some of the flagpoles behind Hitler and stuff, you can see uh, you can see cameras sliding up and down the poles and stuff. Like, oh, yeah. th- there's yeah. some pretty interesting shots. I mean, the movie's made brilliantly. You you watch it for that, and then you it's almost like watch uh, for a guy like me. It's almost like watching Birth of a Nation in a way. You're watching this in, this intensely historical piece of cinema. And it's wrapped around so much hatred at the same time. It's very difficult to kind of wrap your head around. That being said, from your point of view, what's the value of this? Now, you know, Synapse puts this movie out. Mm -hmm. What's the value, in your opinion, of putting putting this out to the people to watch today? I think, you know, first and foremost, if you're looking at it from a historical standpoint as a propaganda film, it's got lots to study right it's important for a lot of different reasons and that's probably really more your area than mine Mm -hmm. right Mm -hmm. i remember watching it a couple times in a couple different classes when i was an undergrad actually i remember watching it in a a, a communications 101 class and it's funny that you bring up uh birth of a nation because the professor kind of played one off the other a little bit Uh right uh and then my uh my advisor at the at in at university um was obviously a german historian but his thing was propaganda film and film so he was always talking about triumph of the will Mm -hmm. so i mean i've seen it and i watched it again with these the synapse version you know from a perspective of sitting down and watching a film it needs an editor (laughs) (laughs) here i am (laughs) that's not synapse's fault that's lenny reefenstahl's issue right Um, but so there's that. And I think Riefenstahl herself becomes, I mean, it was, I know she spent the rest of her life trying to make amends yeah. for, you know, apologizing, saying she, I was just a filmmaker, right? Mm-hmm. Which always reminds me of, a, I was just following orders. Yeah, I agree with that. Yeah, And she, she's rightly taken a lot of criticism and hits for what she did. Now, that's also easy for us to do in you know, hindsight, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. She didn't necessarily know what everything was going to lead to, right. nor did anyone else. I mean, Time Magazine made Hitler Man of the Year in 1932. So, right, right, right. 
um, you know, if you want to start uh, second guessing what people were thinking about Hitler in the early 30s, sure. that's always a fraught game. Mm -hmm. um, but I think, you know, it's worth studying Riefenstahl's motivations and her life and how she's tried to or tried to uh, make excuses, make amends, whatever you want to call it, explaining away why she did this film. Do you think that it's it's a good it's a good tool to use also to learn what to know what you're seeing in a way like yeah, an educational piece like it, like when you're being you like when you're being advertised to watching a football game let's say that's propaganda mm -hmm. you know but yes. but but in order to identify it wherever it may lie do you think that it's good to see I mean it is really kind of in your face and I I agree that you need an editor Jamie unless you are a fervent fanatical person who loves could like sit there. You know, who could sit there and watch. There, there's there's politicians in our lifetime before that you know people could sit there and watch a love letter like this, sure. you know, to uh, to someone. And do you think it is a useful tool for that? Or do you think it's so dated that we should look at more I, I, modern pieces of propaganda? No, no, because modern pieces of propaganda are not going to give you the idea of what Nazi propaganda was like. Now you'll see. Pieces of Nazi propaganda or propaganda techniques in modern day propaganda, right? Because sure. I think they wrote the book, okay? I mean, Goebbels, Riefenstahl, Hitler, they were very good at the propaganda piece. So, no, it has absolute value as a historical document to watch. I think from watching it from today's, from our perspectives today, if we were to just sit down and watch it not knowing any of the background, we might find it a little curious that it's so long, but. Riefenstahl was going for that, right? I think it was about majesty, and that was kind of the style of filmmaking in the the thirties, anyway, right? It, filmmaking in and of itself was becoming a much more popular medium, much more experimental, and so you had filmmakers like Riefenstahl and others trying to see what they could do with the medium, and she did a, you know, for better or worse, she did a great job. Now I know I said it needed an editor, but. It, it, there's a lot there. And I think from today's standpoint, it's important to watch these things because, you know, and like I, I try to do in all my classes, I always try to make sure that the students understand that the things that happened in the past are still related to, to today, okay, and still matter today. A lot of the things we do and see and say can be traced back to that stuff. Mm -hmm. So we, we always have to understand what the past was, was how it was, but and this is, I think, and this will be my social commentary. The problem in today's American society is we have no concept of the past. We don't put anything into its historical context. Mm -hmm. We just go, oh, that's awful. Right. Well, yeah, it's awful by our standards today, but it wasn't awful by theirs. Right. Okay, I, you know, I, my Jack the Ripper course, I just taught it again last semester, mm -hmm. and you know, one of the students actually said, well, we all know how horrible Victorian England was. It was misogynistic. It was this, 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 and it was awful. And I said, yeah, we know that, but they didn't know that. Right. Or, or if they did, it didn't matter. I mean, so that's the thing. It's, sort, America, of, it's sort of like, it, it's, it's like blaming people 300 years ago for having body odor because they didn't have deodorant. <laughs> exactly. I mean, it stakes maybe a little bit higher today, but no, that's absolutely it. You yeah. Know? Yeah, I want to transition into Stalingrad, which was much further in, and sure. it, this, this was almost toward the more the end of the war. But to bridge that, 
Talk a little bit. This is always something that kind of fascinated me. I, 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 I for obvious reasons, maybe we'll talk about it a little bit later. That I kind of put myself <clears throat> in the shoes of a, of a young person living in a bordered country to Germany, okay. you know, and stuff. And Poland. Yes, exactly. And 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 I, 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 I the mood, the life these people were living, like just up to the war, and then just after the war. Um, just a real, I want to say too brief, but sort of a, what was it like? I mean, were people scared? Did they know this was coming? Did they not believe it? Or was it a mix of, of everything? I think it was a mix of everything. Mm. Some people knew what was coming. Some people thought they knew what was coming. A lot of people still thought Hitler was kind of a joke. Mm -hmm. Certainly, uh, Jews living in Germany started getting out and, and understanding probably still too late, but some early on. Left, where, where 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 did that start? Where how did they get that? How did the Jews get on that tip? Like like what was what was being said? Even if it was coded, what was what was like giving them the clue? We better get out of here. This guy's after us because he didn't say right away, right? He didn't just come out and say, "I hate the Jews and we're going to exterminate." That's not ex that's not no no you no, no hear no. nothing no. like that in in in, in prime time for the will. Not that I could pick no, out, at least. No, you know? and Hitler was very good at tailoring his message to his audience, and he understood that if, if the anti-Semitism wasn't going to play with the audience he was talking to, he didn't bring it up. Now, after they take power, I mean, they immediately, there's a, there's a boycott of Jewish businesses in April 1933, um, which is actually organized not by the state, but, but by the party, by the SA, and it's a failure. The German German people are like, I've been buying my groceries from Greenspan over here my entire life. I'm not going to boycott him. What was the rationale for boy for the boycott? That's what I'm kind of like. What was what was okay. the rationale? I mean, for it. Well, because they had felt that the Jews in German society had had you know taken uh, from an economic standpoint uh, um, that they controlled the big business. So you got to understand too from a from a national from a Nazi standpoint their anti-Semitism standpoint is the Jew was everything you didn't like. Okay. The Jew was the capitalist moneylender who owned the department store, who put all these Germans out of work. Okay. But the Jew was also a communist who wanted to take over the state and have everything be, you know, it was whatever boogeyman you needed them to be. The Jew could be, I've heard it. Uh, uh, Sander Gilman in this this one um, documentary I show my Holocaust class on anti-Semitism. The very opening scene, he says, you know, the Jew was everything you you didn't you didn't like about yourself, and the Jew, the image of the Jew could shift. It was protean, okay. It could it was he was a capitalist. He was a communist. He loved all money and worldly goods. He despised money and worldly. It just depended on where you came, you know, your point of view. And, you know, the Nazis were good at, at playing those fears up. And, uh, you know, the boycott actually fails. But right, really right after that, the government starts getting more involved in the anti-Semitic measures. They begin passing anti-Semitic legislation. And this all really kind of culminates in the passage of the Nuremberg Laws in the fall of 1935, which does two things. Number one, it defines who a Jew is and who isn't a Jew down to, and they're looking at heritage and 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 things like that, you know, your ancestry, uh, down to like a half Jew, a quarter Jew, depending on how many Jewish grandparents you had. I mean, it was all supposed to be very. It's kind of silly when you look at it now. Mm -hmm. Talking about percentages of Jewish blood, which Hitler the, had, yeah, right? Hitler was what? What quarter? 
Was he Corbin Jones? I don't know. See, there's always I've heard that. I've never really gotten much into his okay. psycho. Mm-hmm. I now now I know Heydrich, who was part of the leadership that that brought about the Holocaust. It's pretty pretty sure he was part Jewish, and that he was so brutal against the Jews as a way to hide that ancestry. That so he could never nobody could ever question how he treated the Jews because he was just so harsh to them. You know, there were two wars. There was the war, and then there was the war against the Jews. Okay, and they were both in Hitler's mind equal. Hmm. If not more so, the war against the Jews. And this, we can talk about this when we start kind of with Stalingrad. Sure. When when they invade the Soviet Union in 1941, this was not in the, 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 there are documents, the orders came out. This was not an ordinary war. There is no, you do not give the enemy any, any aid. You don't, you don't treat them well. There's no Geneva conventions on the Eastern Front. It was called, the, the term they used was Vernichtungskrieg, war to the death. Mm-hmm. German National Socialism versus Soviet Communism, kind of these two world political systems were going to clash, and only one was going to survive. Okay, and what you have to remember, though, is in Hitler's mind, Judaism and Bolshevism, communism, Soviet communism, Russian communism, were part and parts, they were intertwined. Mm-hmm. Okay, he, he always, the, you always see this Judeo-Bolshevik mm-hmm. conspiracy. So, uh, you know, the, the war in the East, the war against the Jews uh, were combined totally. Okay, And you got to remember, too, if you go back to Mein Kampf, Hitler's book that he wrote when he was in prison, published in 2025, 20, 24, 25, I think, 24, um, he lays all out, not so much the Jews. Well, he talks a lot about the Jews, but he, he says that we are going to conquer our living space, and that living space is the East. He never says anything about France, Central, you know, they Germany's future lay to the East. And it, that, that's an old German mindset that goes back to the 13th century, that German Germany was destined to colonize the East, Ukraine, parts of Soviet Union, things like that. So this was all intertwined together. You know, the, if you tend to go back and look at the war as the Soviet Union always being Hitler's main target, it makes more sense. Uh-huh. And these other things against the West and France, uh, the war against Great Britain, you know, those were, those were steps getting him towards where he wanted to be, which was the Soviet Union. Was he, was he, gain, was he trying to take these, com- these countries over to basically gain the military strength and to, to fight Russia? So he was I, he was usurping the, the the militaries these countries to was, was that his mindset? No, well, no. I think a lot of it was he knew in this. You know, one of the reasons. You know, remember, Hitler served in World War One. Right. He was on the front lines, and he was one of these veterans that came back after the war, pretty dissatisfied and dysfunctional. Mm-hmm. And and he understood that you can't fight a two front war and win it because that's partially what. What defeated Germany during World War One? I. I think had he, you know, he he invaded Poland as a kind of a way to start moving east. But then he had to kind of, I think he thought that Britain and France were just gonna bow to him and and form a separate peace. I think he felt that <clears throat> even after he defeated France, that that Great Britain was gonna was gonna sign some kind of separate peace, mm-hmm. right? capitulate more. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. and work out some kind of. You know, you control, and you got to remember, this is always had European, 
politics, European and international politics, especially at the end of wars during peace time, have always been this, dividing things into spheres of influence. And, and for Hitler, I think the idea was, I'm going to get the East and everything, you know, from Germany eastward and Britain, you keep your empire overseas. Uh, France, you know, France, maybe I've never really looked at why, you know, obviously I know why he hated France because of World War One, Right. Um but I think, you know, his ultimate goal was always the living space in the East, which meant the Soviet Union. So, uh, you know, I think he, he invaded Poland. He had to go to war against France and Britain because they finally guaranteed Poland's security. And then when he invaded Poland in September 1939, Britain and France declared war on Germany. So he was kind of stuck fighting that. He had formed a peace with Stalin right before the with the Soviet Union right before the invasion of Poland, the Nazi-Soviet pact. He knew he had to have that because he couldn't be going into Poland and then running up against Stalin's Red Army. He wasn't ready. Right. So he was so lying he, to Stalin, like basically biding his time. He was biding before his time. He, he wanted to, to he, at a time of his choosing, he wanted to start that war. Can I, let me ask you a question. Um, there's something that sure. kind of, it, it's, and then we're going to get more into Stalingrad because we're at that point anyway. You know, we're at that point, you know, we're talking more about sure. World War now. Um, there's something that's really curious to me is that there was a guy in this whole mix, Mussolini. Uh-huh. I don't ever hear a damn thing about Italy or, or him or nothing at all. It's like his name is there, but like you hear Hitler, this Hitler, and you hear Stalin a lot this night cause they were after each other. But that guy was a jerk too, right? <laughs> I mean, you know, yeah, like, he, like, he why was. don't we hear like, what's the deal? Like what, what? I'm at a loss as to the lack of discussion, knowledge, or whatever about about him and Italy at that time and their role in the war. Because they, he was inept. I mean, Hitler had to. There was times Hitler had to bail him out in Greece. That's why one of the reasons that uh, the invasion of the Soviet Union is postponed as long as it is. He wanted Hitler was ready to go earlier in the spring of '41. Uh, Mussolini decides to invade Greece, which would be, if you looked at a huge map of Europe and Hitler wanting to go into the Soviet Union, he has to have his southern flank secure, which would be Greece and the Balkans. Well, Mussolini and the Italians decide they're going to go in there and take it over and they get their butts kicked. So he has to go in there and bail Mussolini out. Mussolini was an inept military leader. You know, it's funny because really... Up until a certain point of the two, Mussolini, uh, Hitler would, would kind of be seen as Mussolini's junior partner, right? It, Mussolini and Italy go and switch to fascism in the 1920s, right? And it's not till the 30s with Germany and stuff. But as far as a military power, they just they just didn't have it in them, I guess. They didn't have the training. They didn't have the equipment. They didn't have the population. So you just don't hear much because if anything, from the German perspective, from Hitler's perspective, Mussolini was probably more of a pain in the you-know-what than he was a help <laughs> right, right. from a military perspective. Because there was not a lot of consultation. Mussolini still saw himself as kind of the 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 top fascist dog and that, you know, when it, the reality of the situation had completely changed, right. Mussolini didn't understand that. Gotcha. And pretty much... Every military adventure they launched on their own was a disaster. Ethiopia, Greece, North Africa. So I think different names, too. I mean, Mussolini was more intent on making the Mediterranean 
in all of the areas of you know southern Europe, North Africa, uh, Mid East. They're more of a, an Italian. You know, they always wanted, they wanted to call it. Uh, he always called the Mediterranean uh, RC. Right? They gotcha. wanted to dominate that area. Gotcha. That wasn't so much Hitler's intent as it was Central Europe and Eastern Europe. Gotcha. Okay. So so then Hitler's. His preoccupation with with getting into Russia and taking that land will kind of pivot mm-hmm. us a little bit more here toward the other film that Synapse has released, Stalingrad, right? Which was right. Uh, a 2003, it was a television miniseries, documentary miniseries, shown in Russia and Germany mm-hmm. at the same time in slightly different versions and just, I, I know that some of these stories were sort of like, there might have been a German story that they kind of said, well, this is a Russian soldier. They, they, there was a little dramatic liberties taken with this. But for the most part, this is a pretty straightforward uh, documentary. Yes, yeah, snapshot of the horrors of what is mm-hmm. known as the Battle of Stalingrad. Um, now, its name is Stalingrad. That's a very familiar name, but the town isn't even called that anymore. So... Start talking no. about what's the significance of this battle? Why do we all know the name Stalingrad, even though it doesn't even exist anymore? Well, as you kind of mentioned when we first started talking, this is probably the turning point in the war. Where from after Stalingrad, the German army is all the way back. You know, there's no more advances for the German army. In Soviet Russia. It's, it's the furthest all east they went, right? That's the furthest east the they furthest got. The furthest east they get, yes. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, you know, and yeah, it's not even called Stalingrad's Volgograd now. It is kind of from a military, and you're like, I'm teaching military history this semester too, so. Oh, good. Both. <laughs> um, this is what they would call a, a classic from a, a meat grinder. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, to, for lack of a better term, you've seen some like during World War One, they had the Battle of Verdun. Same thing. There's no objective here. OK, there is the city of Stalingrad. OK, got it. The idea is it really they didn't need to control Stalingrad. I mean, it had some military value because of where it was situated on the river because it controlled uh, north south uh, transportation routes from from the river. But they could have easily by they could have isolated Stalingrad and bypassed it. The the whole thing with Stalingrad is that was not the objective of that that campaign. The objective was the Caucasus oil fields, which they mention in the in the documentary. Okay, and those are south. Those are in the Baku region down on the Black Sea. It's a huge oil reserve, and had Hitler captured it, um, you know, oil is. <laughs> To a mechanized army is like water to a human, right? Sure, it, can, sure. it needs it. And that may have changed things. But what happens is they never, they get obsessed with Stalingrad. Hitler gets obsessed with taking it because it bears Stalin's name. And instead of, and, and the, again, the drive towards, towards the Caucasus oil fields fails. They never get there. They're close, but they don't get there. Because by then, a lot of the resources and things are being funneled into taking Stalingrad. So it becomes a meat grinder with both sides just pouring in men and material. It's, 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 I, you know, I wrote this down. Actually, what I wrote down is it's a never-ending senseless slaughter to appease the egos of two dicks. <laughs> that's what I wrote that down. And, I mean, that's, that's pretty – so it's basically the ego of Stalin and Hitler hitting head-to-head because 
from what I could see with this is you calling it a meat grinder. I know that term I don't even think even crossed my mind, but that's exactly. It seemed like it was just a place to go to fight and die. Yeah, pretty much. I, I mean, mean, it was an ego. Me. Was it Was it really just a battle of egos between these two jerks? I, I don't think, because like I said, Stalingrad itself has some military value, okay? Mm-hmm. Uh, in that campaign, first of all, so they're, they're going towards Stalingrad, and then they're turning south. So they're taking a right turn, right? Mm-hmm. So as they're marching south towards these Caucasus oil fields from a military commander standpoint, you always got to keep your flanks secure, your sides. So Hitler's, the, the sixth arm of the army's left flank had to be secure. So they thought they, they would take Stalingrad because it's kind of a major transportation junction. Uh, the river, uh, the city is an industrial kind of, so they were making red army tanks and things there. They didn't need to take it. They could have isolated it. They could have cut it off and just let it kind of like they did with Leningrad, put it under siege and let it try. I mean, Leningrad didn't either, but to kind of just die off. So it does have its its, its military value. The thing is, is then it does become the war of the two dicks. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. If that makes sense. Yeah, no. I mean, because, well, it was the Sixth Army, right? The German. Um, under under Paulus, yeah. And, and, and it's. I mean, it seemed like by the end they were they were turning to cannibalism and everything. There was no supplies mm-hmm. coming in. They were, I'm not even sure, no, like was, they even had weapons or ammo. At sometimes it was hand to hand battles. Well, that was inside. So inside the city, they and again, you know, this is interesting too because I, um, in many ways, you're talking about armies that are not trained for the 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 battle that they're going into. Mm-hmm. So the German armies going into the Soviet the, Union, the urban warfare, you mean? The yeah, they're not trained mm-hmm. for this kind of urban warfare, mm-hmm. right? It's and it's the same case with the United States and Vietnam. The United States Army is is training for battles in the open plains of Europe, in Germany at the Fulda Gap, and the next thing you know, they find themselves in a jungle. <laughs> it's not the same thing. They're not trained for it. And in Stalingrad, it's it's the same thing. The, the, the German army goes in, and they do almost take the city. They're within hundreds of yards of completely wiping out the defenders and the defenders just hold on and then it becomes this meat grinder in the city with the house to house fighting block to block house to house room to room i I just myself can't even imagine what it must have been like and i thought in a lot of ways that that documentary did a really good job of that there were some other things that really stood out to me about that that we can talk about those too but as far as Taking and holding Stalingrad, its original, the original mission was probably valid to to guard their flank and to take the city if they could. The problem is when they can't take it easily, they don't pull back. They it, don't. It becomes they ego. They just keep. It becomes point. ego mm-hmm. feeding the meat into the grinder. Mm-hmm. And um, you know the thing is too, Tim, when you're invading another country. You have to understand that the people in Stalingrad, if they lose, they have everything to lose. Everything, up to and including their lives. And they're going to fight to the absolute death. German soldiers, like, I'm 5,000 miles away from my house in Stuttgart or however long, fighting in the middle of Russia for this freaking city, right? Right. But also, you got to remember, too, the Soviet, the the Red Army always had what they had uh, attached to all their all their units called a, a political commissar, okay, which was basically a political officer who made sure that the Red Army didn't retreat. 
you know, and hear stories of political commissars shooting Red Army soldiers in the back as they're running away trying to, to, to retreat. And so that happens with the Red Army at Stalingrad. Stalin does, or Hitler does the same thing. He order, issues these standard high orders. Like, you're not, you're, there's no retreat and you're not surrendering. You stay until you, you're dead or you win. Well, it's said, it's, it's stated in the film. I actually wrote this down. I found this very powerful statement that Stalingrad was a war crime committed by Hitler against his own troops. Yeah, yeah, in some ways. I mean, they had plenty of opportunities up to a certain point to disengage from Stalingrad while, while they could still get away and reform and, be, and continue to be an effective fighting force. After a certain point into the winter of 43, when the, so, when the Red Army counterattacks across the Volga and they outflank the 6th Army, who is now kind of still a little in Stalingrad, but really more in a bubble outside of it. And the Soviet Red Army just comes across the river on both sides. The flanks of the 6th Army were being guarded by Italians and Romanians who didn't really necessarily want to be there. And they, the Red Army breaks through. Then they, in turn, encircle the 6th Army. And once they're encircled, they do have one or two uh, chances to break out and regroup and fight another day, and Hitler refuses to let them. Even to the point of making Paulus promoting him to field general because it says in in the documentary and this is no german field marshal had ever surrendered he was expected to commit suicide and he didn't he actually surrendered so you kind of brought this up to what were some of the things uh i mean look triumph for the will is a nazi propaganda film much different than this is a documentary a more modern documentary made 20 years ago 20 Mm -hmm. came out in 2003 let's call it 20 years ago so more modern depiction. Um, mm-hmm. I, what I did like about it was the fact that the age of the survivors was still intact to the point where they were, they still had it. You could still, you know what I mean? Like it was 20 sure. years ago and that's, we, we don't have all those people anymore, you know? Um, and it was mm-hmm. good to have those people talking. What, what were some of the things about the documentary that you were really glad to see in there, maybe surprised to see in there? And maybe if there was anything left out that you were surprised by. Just this documentary itself. Sure. No, to me, what really struck me is the near the end when they are talking about what the, the, the German POWs went through after Stalingrad. So Paulus surrenders and Paulus disappears. I think he comes back to Germany 20 years later. I can't remember if he just disappears or he comes back. And I, I apologize to your audience. Because you never knew what happened to these people who surrendered at Stalingrad. You just always had the feeling that they were taken by the Red Army. And it was God knows what the experience was. Because you got to remember, Red Army troops were very happy to take all sorts of revenge on the Germans for what they had done. The Germans went into, into, into Russia in 1941, and they didn't care. They just burned, pillaged, looted, raped. It didn't matter, right? It was part of that kind of mindset of this war to the end this vernictables creek and to see the german pow saying like wow we were actually treated very well by the soviets while we were, i mean it's still awful pow camp is i'm sure awful well and yeah but, but they were told that these were evil monsters that were going to take right, they were told right. yeah yeah that these are slave slavering barbarians right, right. that that if you surrender you're going to have these horrible things happen to you and 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 for that to not 
to not materialize in the way they thought it was going to was interesting. I also thought one of the really interesting highlights of that documentary, it, and I'm very much into this military history mindset because I'm teaching it next sem- this semester starting uh-huh. on Monday, is this idea of when the German soldiers return back to Germany after 10, 15, 20 years to their families and all that. And I don't, I don't want your audience to think that I'm making moral equivalencies between German soldiers who invaded the Soviet union and like say American fighter pilots who were shot down in Vietnam and who came POW MIA. Mm -hmm. Right. But that's, it's the same kind of, idea right Mm -hmm. that they're welcoming home these people that they thought were never coming home again that were lost and so to me that is you know and that is really kind of one of the things about war that's always universal Mm -hmm. is this coming home and what is it going to be like when you come home what is it even if you've even if you've never been a pow you enlist you go or you get drafted you do your two years in vietnam and you come home and everything's different and the way you're treated by the population is, at least in the United States, in many cases, was awful. Right. But you see these guys who have been gone for 20 years. Imagine like a John McCain, okay? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. He goes over. He's a Navy fighter pilot. He gets shot down. I forget how long he was a POW in Hanoi. But then you come home, and the war's over. Things are completely different, right? right. You know, and you go back to all those, like, kind of Vietnam films, even back to, like, <laughs> Forrest Gump. Right, right when him right. and Lieutenant Dan get out, and they're like, "What the hell?" Or Lieutenant Dan, and he's like, "What the hell's going on?" You know, and right. So this idea of coming back from that to a, and think about these these guys who went into the into the Soviet Union. I don't know how much news they were getting about what was going on in Germany at the. They didn't even because then they. I remember them even saying like once, "Yeah, we got the news. The war was over." Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. right, and then you yeah. go you go back, and the entire map of your homeland is redrawn. You're either going back to East Germany or West Germany. Right, right. Why not? You know, so everything's completely changed. The world is different. I mean, can you imagine going, you know, so you're a, you're a soldier in the 6th Army, you get captured in 40, let's say 43. You go to a Soviet POW camp for 10 years. I'm just saying this, okay? Mm-hmm. So that's 1953. You come back home to a nuclear world. Right, yeah. Where there's bombs now that will will incinerate entire cities in an, in a blink of an eye, you know. So the the differences, the things, it just it, it was it was a good documentary for that. The the one thing I I took issue with in this documentary is I thought they went a little bit too far in trying to explain how they didn't know what was going on vis a vis the Holocaust. And I think, but then I think that is in many ways part and parcel. You know, after the war, up until really the 1980s, the, the German army, the Wehrmacht, had maintained this air that they had been professional soldiers and that they had nothing to do with the Holocaust, which by and large is the truth. Okay, I always, my students, when I teach this course, are always astounded when I'm like, it's not the German army, it's the German police, it's the security services under Himmler, it's not the military. It's the Nazis. Nazis. Well, in, yeah, they're, you know. But no, I don't even think you can say Nazis, Tim, because there were lots of people in the German security services who shot Jews in the back of the head that did not consider themselves Nazis. Mm -hmm. That's a whole other (laughs) conversation. But Mm -hmm. the idea is was somehow had clean hands in all of this and that they had upheld, you know, military discipline in this and that. And again, for the most part, they did. But they 
you know, when the German, when the security police were in the Soviet Union behind the army, rounding up Jews and shooting them, which is really the beginnings of the Holocaust, Wehrmacht soldiers are at those killing sites watching, eating ice cream. You know, and, and we've uncovered documents where the German army is giving not not shooting support, not killing support, but uh, other kinds of support. Hey, you need some trucks? Here's some trucks. Things like that. You know, so they're giving them logistical support is the word I've been looking for. No, they're not there killing people or out, you know, but they're, they weren't as clean as what they tried I mean, right, to. Right, right. There was blood on everyone's so, hands and there was a lot of finger pointing. There was pointing blood on everyone's hands. When fingers are pointing toward themselves sometimes. Yeah, and I just thought in some ways it was interesting to see how the the people they interviewed talked about it and I thought that was important. I just wondered why the people who made the documentary felt that they needed to put that in there not even that they needed to but how they needed to place so much emphasis on that one thing that i found really fascinating was the fact that there was tens of thousands i think of you were talking about you weren't sure like who was getting the news like what was going on and things like that a couple minutes ago Mm -hmm. and how there were there were soldiers and people that did not know even know the war was over and they were hiding underground in stalingrad uh, yeah. in like communities almost hiding and the war had been over and they were finding people for a while after yeah. the war was, it's almost, and this is for the most part, a horror film, you know, pod, and, th- and what bigger horror story is there than world war two, but that is a horror story right there. I mean, there's like so much, uh, <laughs> there, so like the, the Germans under the stairs. Yeah, yeah. The 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 German chuds. You know, I mean, it's like it's 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 spooky, but it's true that they. I mean, they're you're cut off. How do you know? You're just trying to stay alive. Well, and I guess you know, when the war's gone that long, you figure it's never going to end. Yeah, it's you know, it's like that. It's apocryphal, though. I I do know that it did happen. You know, these these isolated Japanese guys on these Pacific islands out in the middle of nowhere. And it's 1946, 47. They don't know the war's over. They've been cut off. They have no idea. Do you think the importance then of a film like this then is to is to lay in front of you, no matter what country you're talking about, the horrors of war and how what I mean, because the, the interesting thing about the Nazis is that I also heard this said, um, I think it was in the documentary, um, that the Nazis were driven by ideology alone. And that's an interesting statement when you sit there and think about it. And to me, Stalingrad, what it said to me at least, and you can comment on this and maybe I'm way off, but this is what it said to me was that this is what happens when you get people that are, that are driven by an insane fanatical ideology alone. And then you put mm-hmm. them in a war of egos with another force like Stalin, you know, and then they hit head to head right here. And this is what you get death. Destruction and mayhem. So I think to a point, you're correct. I think from the leadership, the higher-ups, maybe not even in the army, the political leadership, talking Hitler, okay, because by now he is he has taken over the military. He's fired. He is the head of the German general staff, mm-hmm. which, you know, he was a corporal <laughs> right. in the army. Gotcha. Right? Gotcha. He's right. now calling the shots, though. He And this is interesting, too, when you look at a Hitler, and this is the same as Napoleon Bonaparte. You have the military leader and the political leader 
in the same person. There are no checks and balances. There are no political leader says this to the general and the general says, okay, but if we do, this is a really bad idea for X, Y, and Z. Maybe you should rethink that. Even if the political leader doesn't follow those instructions, there's been at least an attempt to check them. But when you have the, the head of the German party, the German state, and the head of the military all in the same person, there's no checks and balances. So yes, at the very top, exactly. I agree with you 100%. I think when you get down to the more unit level, to the granular level, to the, the soldier in the street of Stalingrad with his squad, with his platoon, I'm not necessarily thinking that it's about ideology or even ego. From everything I've read and studied about war, and I'm more of a Holocaust historian than I am a military historian, when you get to that level, when you get to the squad level, the platoon level, the company level, you fight because you don't want to let your brothers down. You do not want to abandon them. It's this camaraderie that makes them do the things they do. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. You know, so, so and I, I, the only reason I say that is because, and don't get me wrong, were there fanatical Nazis fighting in the streets of Stalingrad? Yes, absolutely. But my suspicion is, is the majority were just people who ended, men who ended up in the army in Stalingrad and they, they did what they did, not for Hitler, not for hatred of Stalin but because they didn't want to let their brothers down. Right. And I've, I've never served. I've never been in the military. So I don't, it's hard for me to understand that. Mm -hmm. But time and time again, of people that I've talked to that have been in war of documentaries, I've seen about, about military, you know, war and military documentaries, books I've read. It always comes down to that's why they fight at that level. Right. It's hmm. not grand ideologies. It's not this, it's not that. Right. It is love for their for their brothers. Well, and it's it's interesting too because Stalingrad itself, as we said, was basically I want you know it was a meat grinder, a stalemate, whatever you want to call it, and it was a turning point in the war because the Germans couldn't get any further east. Right. And I think they kind of it sounded like the soldiers that were talking in that documentary. That's when they started realizing they'd been lied to that this was not going to work out that we can't get any further, and because they they were shocked that they couldn't defeat these people, you know, because they were so, they were used to these, these victories. Yeah. But do, do you think by and large though, that this is a good quality documentary for someone who is. Absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. It's, 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 it's a great documentary. I thought it had a lot of really interesting things, things that I'd never seen. Mm -hmm. um, and, and yeah, people should watch it. It should be anybody that's interested in military history and i know there's a lot of people that you know i have an uncle who does nothing but watch the american heroes channel uh -huh, right right. <laughs> right right yeah. right and that's great and i've never had any problem with history channel doc i mean i think it's always been awesome maybe some of them are better than others some of them are more truthful than others right 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 but uh you know anybody that's interested in military history should watch this documentary with a critical eye yes but you should watch any documentary any film anything like that critical eye right 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 you know don't because if you do you're just giving into i don't want to say propaganda but you're just letting yourself believe what somebody's telling you without questioning it right and i mean from my perspective as a as an educator about the holocaust about anything the thing i teach my classes and my students is you don't take anything at its face value you question everything right 
always look beyond what people are telling you because there's usually a different story. Yeah. I always say, ask the next question. Don't keep your mouth shut. If, if, right. if the answer to a question you ask leads to another question, don't clam up, ask it and keep going down that, that road. No, That's how I live. Like I, I'm inquisitive when I'm get curious and I keep going. So, of course, the question leads to, at least to me, of course, as a movie collector, as a guy that collects physical media, I am hosting the Synapse Films podcast. I'm normally talking about movies like Prom Night and Frankenhooker (laughs) and Street Trash and things like this. Well, now I'm sitting here talking about the very, very serious and important films, Triumph of the Will and Stalingrad. Now, especially Triumph of the Will. The actual releasing of Triumph of the Will in of itself, especially in parts of today's culture, could be seen as an insult at all. Just to even put that Absolutely. out there. There's a lot of canceled things going on. We can't see that. You know, whereas I see it as, no, we need to learn from that so we don't make the, make the same mistakes. That sounds like a cliche because maybe because it's true, but there's a lot of things going on. So, but why Synapse? You know, why the company that put out Suspiria? You know, why the company that put out Hot Dog the Movie? Why? I love that movie, by the way. <laughs> it's great. <laughs> you know, so I'm going to try to explain this the way I can. Because to be frank with you, you know, I'm, I've been part of this company now for where it's not even a year yet. You know, but I've been friends with Jerry and Don and I've gotten to know the other people in the company over the years and have, have been very happy here and everything. But, you know, it was a question for me. I never asked. You know, I never, I, I think I might have asked, why did you put out Manos, the Hands of Fate? But I never asked, why did you, why did you put these out? So I'm going to, in the most articulate way I can do, I'm going to explain how I know why they put this out, how I came to this. Okay. So you're going to help me with this because I, you know probably more about this than me, although I've been trying to learn as much as I can about this for, for reasons that will become obvious here pretty soon. So there's been a book published that's titled Three Minutes in Poland by Glenn Kurtz. Mm-hmm. Glenn right. Kurtz was, I'm, gonna, I'm paraphrasing here, I'm going off memory. I, 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 I am about a halfway through this book right now. I confess I'm not totally through the book, but I am reading it. Mm-hmm. So Glenn Kurtz's grandfather dies and he is going through his belongings. So he's going through all of his grandfather's old stuff. And he finds an old film strip of, I, I assume, 16 yeah. millimeter or something like that film. And uh, he has it restored, I do believe, on VHS or whatnot. And what he sees is footage clearly from 1930s Europe. Mm-hmm. So he starts going down this rabbit hole. What is this footage? Right. Where was it filmed? Who are these people? How are these people related to my grandfather, to my family? Uh, again, where was this taken? What is this footage? And so mm-hmm. he, now you're going to have to help me here because I might get a little mixed up how, where, where this film went. You may be a little bit better than this me. So the film ends up mm-hmm. in the hands of what museum? The, Holo- the United States Holocaust Memorial Museum in D.C. Okay. So it ends up there. Yeah. Okay. And in the meet, so and it's sort of a dead end. Uh, the people at the at the museum, I found it very interesting in the book. This, these words keep pounding in my head, and, and I think that was the point of it because it worked. But what are we looking at? 
what are we looking at? And the person who was preserving this film and looking at it and trying to de- decipher what was going on said, the big question I always ask is, what am I looking at? What are we looking at here and stuff? Yeah, so it, it's, it's it, because these are just strung together moments of time. There's no narrative. Sure. It's a home, it's a poorly made home video, basically like made back then. So it's, but so it takes its place at, at the, well, what was the museum again? I'm sorry that I, I, I don't know. The, the United, the Holocaust Memorial Museum in Washington, DC. Okay. So they have a film and video, um, department there. Uh, the actually, if you, uh, did you watch the little clip? Did I send that to you? And, I did. And I think that's what you yeah. were referencing with. So Leslie Swift, I actually know her. I actually, um, was an intern at the photo archive there when I was in graduate school okay. for a summer. She worked there. Oh, gotcha, gotcha. So separately and in the meantime, there is a completely separate family who is doing research on their father who was from Poland. Uh, what was the name of the... Nijelsk. Nijelsk. So he was from yeah. Nijelsk, and mm-hmm. they were they were watching video footage on online from the Washington uh, Holocaust Museum, yeah, and they they are you know watching all the people in the in the video footage and, and all that, and they're they're doing their research. They were they were looking for the old footage of what Nijelsk looked like uh, be, before the war. Sure, and that, that happens a lot. That happens a lot. So, so they're watching this online footage, and they come across the footage that Glenn Kurtz gave. And one of the one of the young ladies watching the film and starts shrieking, "Oh my God! It's Grandpa!" His, grandpa. His yeah. granddaughter recognized him as a child oh. in the footage. Glenn Kurtz, the author, had kind of given up on the film. Thought, "Well, it's a dead end. I, I there's I can't unlock this mystery." Right. Glenn Kurtz is alerted that someone from his footage has been recognized, and he reaches out to the father or grandfather. Right. And indeed, Grandpa is. In this film itself, and ends up being what they refer to as the Rosetta Stone of this film. And he recognizes people and places that are also in this film, which leads Glenn Kurtz on this journey of finding these people in this film and bringing their world back to life from this three minutes. It's it's chilling, you know, when you start that, that, that he brings back all these people's lives who are lost, but but they're still remembered. The echoes are still there mm-hmm. today, right. and the and and so this grandfather becomes this this Rosetta Stone for all this stuff. And and um, the gentleman was born 1924, November 26, and again, Nashelsk, 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 Poland. Uh, Moisek Tuchendler, yeah. I believe. I believe the name is. Uh, who yeah. Americanized his name and came over to the states when he when he came over to the states. Americanized his name to Maurice mm-hmm. Chandler. Chandler. Mm-hmm. Maurice Chandler just happens to be the father of Jerry Chandler, co-owner yes. of Synapse Films. To make the circle complete. Maurice Chandler was interviewed by Sidney Bukowski, who was, was the director and the founder of the archive that I'm involved with now, <clears throat> was interviewed, and his interview was online. So when all this began, I was actually contacted by Glenn Kurtz for permission to use parts of the interview in his book. So this is all <laughs> well, serendipity. 
Right, right. So to to lift the veil off this a little bit more, so I'm talking to Jerry off, Mm -hmm. like one day, I think when we're done recording for this podcast, and I tell Jerry, like we're talking about upcoming episodes, I tell Jerry, I said, I want to do a show about Stalingrad and Triumph of the Will, and I want to do a show together with both movies together because it is a horror movie label and people want to hear about that stuff, but this is important to me, you know, so I was... So I basically said that I I have a friend that I know and he is at the University of Michigan Dearborn <laughs> and and that I would like to have you on as a guest to discuss this. I think it'd be a wonderful conversation. I think it would be great. And Jerry says, "Oh, you know my dad, I think how he put it was my dad is like the oldest living uh Holocaust survivor in the in the United States or something like that. He had said something that really struck he me. He was so there was an organization called uh, there is called Chaim. Uh, it's it's an organization for children that were hidden during the Holocaust. Mm-hmm. So he may have been referencing he's the old, oldest child okay. survivor or right. well, hidden he, child. He is ninety seven, I believe, right now, and he is still he's yeah. still like so he is he's got to be one of the oldest, if not you know. So he he is one of their but. So he just tells me that he's a Holocaust survivor, and that, of course, you know, makes your heart hurt immediately. And the first thing I did was I asked Doctor Rate here, Jamie. I asked Jamie. I said, "Jamie, do do you know who a Maurice Chandler is?" And immediately, you were like, "Oh, I've met," you know. And I was like, "Oh yeah. my," you know. Literally, was like, "Oh, oh, oh my!" This this is something here. So this has led me. Uh, to buying the book Three Minutes in Poland that I'm reading. It's also a film right now that is making the, I believe it's making the festival circuit or it's being played. It's being shown. I think it was being shown in Canada not not too long ago, like a week or two ago as we Mm -hmm. speak. And the the movie's called Three Minutes, A Lengthening. And it's narrated by Helena Bonham Carter. And I'm interested in seeing the movie because Given that the story starts with the three minutes of film, I think it's a visual story to tell. Yeah. There's yeah. parts where Jerry's dad is talking, and you're just like, wow, wow. To hear what he went through, this man, what, what, I don't know if you wanted to comment. So one of the things we do at the archive is, or was my main job when I started there as the curator, was to get all the interviews transcribed. And put the, go through the transcriptions, make sure they're – I don't edit them. I don't change – well, you get a lot of names like Nijelsk and places like that that are not familiar to American ears. Right, right. right. Uh, lots of terms uh, that come from the Jewish culture, Yiddish, mm-hmm. things like that, mm-hmm. Holocaust-related terms. Uh, and we would have – the transcripts would be done just by volunteer transcriptionists that didn't know any of this stuff. So when the transcripts would come in, some of it would be kind of raw. So my job was to go through and kind of make sure everything was uniform, things like that. So I, I've read through and listened to over at least 200 of these interviews that we have mm-hmm. in this process. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there's different – we talk about – or I do and others that talk about Holocaust survivors. And there's kind of different experiences of survival. Okay, there's the experience where you are, you know – the, the one that most people are familiar with is the rounded up, put in a concentration camp or rounded up, most for the most part, sent to a death camp like Auschwitz. 
Okay, it's not in the Auschwitz wasn't a death camp because there wouldn't be survivors. Death occurred there, and that was its main. After a certain point, that's what that's it was its main job. But from a place like Auschwitz, simply because so many people were sent there, that is the one death camp where we have the most survivors. If that makes any sense. Mm-hmm. Um, places like Helno, Treblinka, Sobibor, Belgitz, These were what we would consider kind of a pure death camp, or Everybody that got off the train, with the exception of a handful of people who were allowed to work for a little while, um, was, was gassed on arrival. So there's very few survivors, very few survivors of people that were in these camps because they just didn't survive. Um, but there's lots of different. So that's the kind of uh, I don't want to say stereotypical, but that's the one that most people are familiar with. Rounded up, sent to Auschwitz, or you know, and on the before they're sent to Auschwitz, they're they're in a usually like a ghetto, right? So they have this kind of whole experience that we think of. Roundup, ghetto, concentration camp, Auschwitz. Um, but there's other experiences, and I, I did mention that Maurice um, is a member of this hidden children's organization. So there is the experience of people who were children when the Holocaust occurred, and their parents hit them with with non-jewish families and this even within this has its own different kind of experiences so for instance one person that that and i'm sure maurice knows this person because he's very involved in the holocaust the children's group too was in in paris and his parents were jewish his they were actually from poland they escaped poland to go to france to escape germany and then the germans end up in france uh, the father joins the French army. He's killed during the Battle of France in 1940. And the mother then goes into hiding and hides, Rene is his name, with a Catholic family. And he's he lives with this Catholic family throughout the world. Really relatively nothing bad happens to him. I mean, it's all awful, but he's not rounded up or anything. So that's one experience. Now, Maurice's is a little bit different because, you know, he's with his family in Nizhelsk, which is just north of the city of Warsaw. After the Germans annexed their part of Poland in 1940, 39-40, he's close to the what they call the demarcation line that crosses this. He's in the Soviet-controlled territory. Does that make sense? Yes, he's in harm's way. Harm's in harm's way. So him and his brother escape over the demarcation line into Soviet, into safety. That's safety. Okay. Um, parents get sent to the Warsaw Ghetto. Okay, because what the Nazis did is they established these big ghettos in these bigger cities and went to the smaller towns surrounding them and put those people from the smaller towns into the bigger city. They're conglomerating them in one place. And then because his brother is worried about his parents, they go back and they sneak into the Warsaw Ghetto. Right. And they stay there for a while. And then they escape again, and that's when they go into hiding in the Polish countries. And it's so, it's it's a wild story because they they were I think one of the most dangerous spots for them was getting back into the ghetto because they thought yeah. they were spies or they were nuts or both because who they said what Jew wants to wants to smuggle their way into the ghetto unless you are a spy, right or a smuggler, right. Yeah, and he was just doing this to get his brother back because his brother could not handle being on the run. He couldn't handle hiding. He wanted to be back right. with his parents, correct? Right, and then his brother passes away. 
Mm. And he goes into hiding, and that's where he's liberated. Now, his parents, I, I haven't, I kind of looked through the interview a little bit before we talked, mm-hmm. and I apologize, but I did go through 200 of these, so sometimes the details got a little sketchy in right, my mind, a little right. confused. Right. Um, but I suspect then his parents were sent uh, to Treblinka, right. which yeah. was a death camp yeah. where they were gassed, yeah. um, and most of his family. So he, he survived by escaping the Warsaw ghetto you know sneaking in and then escaping it and going into hiding so that's one kind of experience of the holocaust of a survivor right and there's lots of different there's different ways and it's interesting amongst the survivor community itself you know i've heard survivors say well i i was i was in hiding i i don't really consider myself a survivor right or or one woman i know uh, the same story that she lived around, I forget the town, but it was close to Warsaw and her and her family, her, her mom and her, I think her, her, one of her parents dies. They escape into the Soviet Union and she, you know, for the people that escaped into the Soviet Union, sure, they're out of Nazi hands, but now they're in communist hands and it's, they're not gassed or murdered. But it's not a picnic either. They're placed in work camps. Now, it's not hard labor. Right. But they're sent out to Siberia, out to, you know, beyond the Euro Mountains, beyond farther east than even Stalingrad. Right. Because you start getting out there, you're getting into more kind of Muslim territory. Right. And things. So they're sent out all across the Soviet Union. And it's no picnic either. But I remember this woman saying, well, I I don't consider myself a survivor. I I escaped, Mm -hmm. you know, but you're still a survivor. Right. 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 You know, you, you survived by escaping. And then you survive this other, you know, not that it was as bad as the Nazis, but it was no, you know, it was it was rough. Right. And, and so, and then the survivors themselves, some survivors of the camps will be like, you know, they're not really, a, they don't understand. You know, yeah, sure, they went into hiding. Mm-hmm. You know, they didn't live in a barrack. They didn't watch everybody they know get sent to a gas chamber or get shot or worked to death. And so there's, you know, there's no consensus on any of that, even well, within the survivor community. Right, and it seemed it seemed like some of the interesting things too that that are maybe surprising is a better term too was when when Maurice was traveling, you know, when he was escaping or or he was trying to smuggle his way back in. The thing that stuck out to me was that, I mean, yeah, I mean, you're worried about the Nazis and the soldiers and all that, but they were worried about the the regular people. <laughs> Like they would basically get shook down in order not to be turned in Mm -hmm. because they didn't like him either. I mean, the Jews were not. And that's the thing, too, is like this wasn't just Nazis. These people were having a lot of problems and there was a lot of anti-Semitism that was going around at that time. And that was even when the war was going on. Some of these people, it was basically gangs of older teenagers that would shake down these. They would see these Jewish kids. They would know they were they were on the run. They could tell by just looking at them. They would say, "Hey, Jew, you know, give us your money. Yeah. We won't turn you in." But any from when I was, I, I've listened to Maurice's testimony and, and a few other things, and that really seems to stick out to him. You know that that those were the people he was really afraid of on a, on a direct visceral level. I think he felt like he was most in danger of being captured or killed with those kids sometimes that were just waiting for them. Basically, they would wait mm-hmm. for him. No, I know, I know, and and the 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 record of of Polish civilians during the war, especially when it comes to their Jewish neighbors, and this is think of it from Maurice's standpoint, right? He grew up with these neighbors; these are your neighbors, mm-hmm. right? And maybe you were friends with them, maybe you. And I hear stories. 
I used to play with the kid next door all the time. He wasn't Jewish. We got along great. And then this happens, and they're throwing rocks at me, calling me a Jew, a dirty Jew. Mm-hmm. Right? And and so they don't understand what they did wrong. The polls, and, you know, I, I it's easy to sit here and say every poll was awful, and they all turned in the, jer- the Jews that they found, and lots of them did. Right. Hey, I'm not going to say I'm not going to sit here and whitewash what's I mean what's happening in Poland. And in Poland itself, they are coming to terms with this, and mm-hmm. the Polish government doesn't want to hear that there were Poles who who didn't resist the Nazis and everything. Okay, mm-hmm. and seriously, it's a big controversy the last couple of years in Poland, with mm-hmm. especially professional historians who have pointed these things out um, have been you know banned from going in the country. They've lost funding. They've you know their professional lives. So, but you also have to remember a couple of things about the Polish civilian population. I'm not making excuses for the ones that did it because they wanted to, but they were also a subject peoples. Okay. And if they were caught harboring a Jew, they were shot. Their families could be shot. They could be imprisoned. Okay. That doesn't necessarily mean you got to turn them in, mm-hmm. but they had to also be very careful about how they related to the Jews who were in hiding or, at the beginning of the war and things like that. I'm not making excuses again for the ones who gleefully did it. And there were plenty who did it. I think you're saying there was a lot of, there were a lot of um, incentives to also hate the Jews. A lot of like institutionalized incentives. I, they got paid for turning Jews. Yeah. They're always, they're always. I know that uh, I, I, I literally heard Maurice in his testimony talk about, he had a friend uh, in one of the towns he was hiding in. And it was a very, very good friend, and he was, and they got along great. And I believe he was, he was Catholic, I believe, which hurts me. I was yeah, brought up. I'm, would be, yeah. I'm not a religious guy. I was brought up Catholic, so that kind of, you know, I'm like, oh. most of the polls were Catholic. And, and so are. he said that uh, they were really good friends until one day he asked him if he wanted to go Jew hunting. And they didn't know. He didn't know Maurice was hiding. They didn't know that he he was masquerading as a Catholic himself. I think he wore a, a cross and stuff. And he said, I didn't know anything about. And, and as a Catholic, I don't know much about the Jewish faith or their customs as well. But he was like, I don't, mm-hmm. I didn't know about this. So he was trying. I can imagine how hard that is because I yeah. wouldn't be able. To, I wouldn't last two minutes in a Jewish community. They would know right away I wasn't Jewish. They would just know, you know. And I, right. I can't imagine that constant stress. And you're with a guy who you think is your best friend. He basically says, "Hey, uh, if you say two words to me, I'm going to turn you in." If you tell me who you are, yeah. you're going because they got what like a cow. They were rewarded well for turning in Jews, and yeah. life wasn't exactly bountiful for these people at that time. No, I mean the life under German occupation for the Poles was 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 pretty harsh. Okay, and I'm not saying that excuses anybody for what they did, but there, you know, when we talk. it's interesting because there's there's a term we use a lot when we talk about Holocaust survivors. But I think in many ways it, it, it applies to the bystanders, so the people, the Polish civilians who were there that either could do more to help Jews or, you know, you have this idea of everything's kind of a choiceless choice. You have this Jew, you, you say you know they're Jewish, say they were even a, a friend, an acquaintance, a neighbor prior to the war, and you know they need help. You want to help them. You're ca- I mean, I'm not. I'm Catholic as well. I'm not a religious person. But the Catholic faith preaches. I mean, that's Christianity, right? right. You help thy neighbor. Right. And they're faced with the choice, okay, I can help this person. And if I get caught helping them, there's going to be serious consequences, not only for me, 
You know, the Germans had this this idea of collective responsibility, collective reprisal. They just didn't kill you. They killed your whole family. Okay, so you, you, you were responsible not only for your deeds affecting you, but for everyone else, up to the village level. All right, so they had to contend, and it's a choiceless choice. I helped them, and I put myself and my family at risk. I do nothing, and I'm going against the tenets of my religion. And, you know, Catholic Poles at that time especially in the in the rural areas, were very religious. Okay, It's not like that kind of, you know, I don't know what you call them nowadays, go to church on Easter and Christmas, right? right. The convenient Catholic, <laughs> I guess. Yeah. You know, my, my grandmother, her family was from Poland. She was born here, but my grandma was a Polish Catholic. She went to church every Sunday and every Wednesday. That's just what you did. And they... They, it's not, they're not paying lip service to what they hear. They like to try to live by those tenets. But if they live by those tenets under Nazi occupation when it comes to the Jews, there are serious consequences if they get caught. If they don't do anything and they nobody ever finds out that they knew there was a Jew there and the Jew disappears or whatever, there's no consequences. But now they've gone against the things that they believe in. Do you think part of this was the fact that the parents were dealing with this on that kind of level and then these, like, these let's say, 17-year-old kids – it would trickle down to them in more of a bully type way, you know, where the parents might be afraid to help and they're, they, they, they feel stuck. Like you said, choiceless choices and things like that. And then the the kids who parents never realize their kids are listening to them. They always are, you know, are listening to like this and it's almost dehumanizing these people to where it almost is um, setting the groundwork for those kinds of shakedowns that Maurice experienced. I think if we're talking about 16, 17, 18 year olds, mm-hmm. cause that seemed like that's what he was afraid of. I mean, it, it, those were the people that were really going to uh, aggressively right. attack him. Like when he was trying to, to go from one place to another, to stay in hiding or to smuggle his way back in and out of the ghetto. Sure. sure. No, I, and I think there's just something about people that age, especially men. Yeah. That are they're just idiots. <laughs> <laughs> right, but think of yourself at seventeen, right? Yeah, There's oh a God, reason why yeah. the military does not want people over a certain age, right? Because you're no longer malleable. They can't just shape you into whatever they want. You know, when you're seventeen, you're hey man, yeah, let's go beat up some Jews. Hell yeah, you know it's good fun. I I don't I, I mean I don't know, and it's hard to always talk about individual motivation because you know you can't. And when people try to explain their motivations afterwards. In many cases, especially when it comes to the Holocaust, everybody has every reason to lie about what they did or why they did it. Right, right. Well, I think that, you know, this was the world that that Maurice Chandler, you know, or Moisek Tuchlinder, you know, grew up yeah. in. And that that's Jerry's dad, who you hear on this show every every month or every episode. And I think that I'm not sure that I directly answered why did Synapse put these out, but I think maybe you can start to figure it out for yourself now, maybe why they put these out. Yeah, yeah, they're important. They're important. And you know what? Yes, trying for the will, is it controversial? Yes, it is. Maybe not as much as it, well, maybe today it is more than it was. I mean, that doesn't, but again, it goes to this idea of putting things into their historical into their historical frame, right? You can't just look at everything through the view through today's standards. It doesn't work. Right. 
it, right. it, by doing that, you're doing yourself a disservice. Right. You know, and, and you're doing everyone around you a disservice. You cannot judge people by today's standards. You just can't do it. I'm not saying it's right or wrong. You can still judge them and say, okay, I'm looking at what you did by the standards of your time or the situation you were in. I still think you were wrong, <laughs> right. but at least I'm a little bit smart. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah. You know, it's funny, but I'd say it was only 10 minutes in a Stalingrad. It got to me. Yeah. I, 10 minutes. It was like, oh, you know, I had to take a breath. I started getting choked up, you know, like, and mm-hmm. I'm like, how am I going to last through a three-part? <laughs> you know, right. no, I can't I even make it this far. And and I got to tell you, I, 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 it would be hard for me. I, you're a, 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 an academic even preparing for these conversations, that's a lot of that's a lot of weight in my shoulders. And learning about Jerry's dad, knowing Jerry's a good friend of mine, and what his dad went through and stuff. It's I don't know why, but there's a weight on my shoulders knowing knowing that. And it's almost uh, it feels like we have to have this conversation, and people have to hear it. They, and, and they absolutely do. And and I think I understand why you teach because. It's almost like you've learned all this information. If you don't let it out, if you don't let that pressure out, if you don't hand that information to someone else, the weight of knowing this and not letting some of it out can can, can become uh, indescribable. Well, it's interesting about survivors and this weight of, of what they carry and tell is when they first, the people that survived and came, especially in the United States after the war and Israel, believe it or not, people said, we don't want to hear what happened to you. That was there, over there. It's the past. You're an American now, and you you go to work, and you have a family, and that's what you do. And they didn't start talking until the 70s and the 80s. They carried those things in silence for a long time. And there are in, you know, I've never met Jerry, and I, I met Maurice once, and he seems like a wonderful person. Um, but it's coming out now that there's a lot of trauma that these the families of the survivors, because they didn't understand when they were young why their parents were doing what they did. Why is it whenever we go out, mom has food in her purse, right? Mm-hmm. Why mm-hmm. do they do this? Why does why are my parents afraid of dogs? These things, and they because they, they didn't tell their children not until later. And I'm not saying that that's the case with the Chandler family, but there is. The, the Holocaust and the way that the, the survivors were treated after the war, and I'm not saying it was even in a, in a, in a nasty way, like, right. oh, yeah, whatever happened to you did not. That it wasn't malicious. It, it was a move on. It was like we need to move on from this kind of thing. And that was right. the, thought, the it, thought process. Even if it was no, misguided, it, it wasn't meant to be mean. Absolutely. It was, it was a healing. They thought a healing yes. process, I yes. guess. Hmm. And and to to end and I guess maybe give a bit of a plug for not only my archive, but other archives like it that collect and and make these interviews available. Sure, absolutely. Two things is number one these interview these interview projects, especially like Voice Vision that started in eighty one, or the one that they've done at uh, at the Fortune Off Video Archive in Yale, which started at the end of the seventies. This was a way for the survivors to tell their stories for the first time. This was the outlet they finally had where somebody wanted to listen to what they had to say. And secondly, is this idea how when we go back and you were talking about when they found the film and they said it was the Rosetta Stone to all these other things. Mm-hmm. As, as I've worked through this and worked through other things, Holocaust related research, 
I have found that the survivor interviews themselves, not just not Maurice's, and, but others, are their own types of Rosetta Stones that unlock information to all these other events that we know about. Because now we can take those interviews and say, you know, we uh, say a Jew was sent to Auschwitz in the spring of 1944, right? Mm -hmm. This was a big time. The Hungarian Jews were all being sent to Auschwitz, 700,000 of them within six weeks. Okay, it was like the last gasp of, of the Holocaust. And you, you look at a Hungarian survivor and says, well, my family was rounded up on April 6th, blah, blah, blah. You can then, you can then look at the you can look at the train schedules from the town they said they left, and you know what day they got to Auschwitz. Mm. So you're taking all this historical evidence, these testimonials or interviews, if you want to call them that, with the actual you know paper documents that were left by the Nazis. Because you got to remember, for the longest time, the only documentary evidence we had about the Holocaust was left by the perpetrators, and who, during the war... Had every and they they did they didn't come right out and say they used all this coded language right we now know what it means but that's what we had as historical evidence and they had every reason to obfuscate what they were doing but now you have these survivor interviews and you have there was a huge archive um, that was just opened and I want to say maybe ten years now uh, at, at a place called Bob Arlson in Germany is all the Red Cross documents from after the war when they were trying to trace all the survivors, their families, the international tracing service. And these have everything, all of the camp records. So you can tell like one survivor we have that went to Auschwitz, type in his name in this archive. And here comes his card from when he arrived at Auschwitz. There's a picture of Abe in 1944 with his name, where he was from, what he did the whole nine yards. So it's, it's from a historical standpoint, these interviews, these testimonies are absolutely important to the study of the Holocaust. And there's the, um, there's the empathy piece too, but the, right. for both reasons. It's so, it's, it's, it's so sick how the Nazis treated these people like human debris, yet they were so meticulous in mm -hmm. documenting every individual just to, just to get the, uh, not that I can identify with a Nazi. I'm just saying, I, I just, it, it Jamie, would you would you tell people listening, especially if they're if they're still here now listening, I know they're interested. Point them in a couple directions, like how to um, with your museum. Is your museum more of an online museum or is it an actual? Yeah, physical? it's it's. Point them it's toward our that. Entire, yeah, our entire collection is online. Um, so it's the website is called. If you just type into Google Voice slash Vision Holocaust, it should come right up. Um, or, you know, uh, Paula, call me sad that I don't know my own URL. <laughs> That's okay. I'm sorry. The URL is um, holocaust.umd.umich.edu. Okay. And we have, right now, there's about 183 up there. We are finishing out um, putting the rest up. There'll be about 250 interviews total on there. Um, but the ones that are up now have transcripts and they have the, if it was an audio taped interview, it has the audio portion. And if it was a videotaped interview, it has a link to the video that's been posted on YouTube. So you can watch or listen or just read. Right. And so, and those, those interviews are what was known as, as testimonies, right? Of the, the survivors yeah, but, basically yeah. just, just letting it flow. Like just remembering everything I did for people listening. Also, I, I simply did a Google search 
for Maurice Chandler or Maury Chandler. And it didn't yeah. take me long to find, it was like a three hour testimonial. And, you yeah. know, if anybody's interested in, in listening, that that's, that's a good one to listen to. Go to Dr. Wright's site, you know, at the University of Michigan Dearborn, their site for their, their museum there. I mean, uh, listen to this stuff. And when you really listen to these people talk, it puts a whole different spin on mm-hmm. this. You know, it's not like watching a, disembodied documentary with people you're listening to these words these people are saying i believe the one i listened to that mr chandler did was in 1983 it's old all right i was only 10 years old when he was doing that 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 testimony and i i i was i put it in my my little earbuds in on my phone i got it and i spent three hours the next three hours did not hit stop except when my wife would ask me a question or something like that you know i just kept listening and i think that um we we all need to continue to educate ourselves and our children that this is not the way to go about things. This is not the way we sh- we should not allow ever again the Nazis or anything like that to ever happen again. Um, and the best way to do that is to educate ourselves about what happened. Yeah, for real. What yeah, happened? Yeah, absolutely. And so. and these are not just numbers. It's not the number six million. That's a meaningless number, right? But when you look at the voices of the people that were there then they're talking about losing their families, losing everything. I mean, and this is not just losing the loss of physical life that is in and of itself awful. This was an entire culture and an entire world wiped out. There are no Jews in Poland anymore. I mean, they're, they're, they're coming, they're going back. I've been to Poland five times. I haven't been to Zhelsk. I've been to Warsaw. I've been to all the major Holocaust sites. Anything that's Jewish is is fake. And that's a whole nother, that's a whole other podcast. It's not. It's getting different. A lot of Jews are moving back to Poland and trying to reestablish what was there. But it, what was there prior to the Holocaust will never return. And it, it was a whole different world onto itself. It was a culture, and it's gone. So in that respect, the Nazis didn't wipe out the Jews physically, but they wiped that culture out. Well, that may be, but Maurice Chandler is 97 years old, and he was a successful businessman and has a family now, and he's lived a happy life over here, so they lose. That's the best revenge. Abe Pasternak, Abe was the Hungarian Jew I was talking about Uh earlier, and he would come in the archive and help me with the Yiddish and things. and very colorful character in and of himself and he said you know my revenge i'm still here hitler's dead right you know and i he lived into his 90s so what you know that's the best revenge absolutely well thank you so much jamie dr ladies and gentlemen there from university of michigan dearborn and thank you so much for this has been a big deal to me as you know because i I, again i'm more of a court i'm more of a court gesture you know (laughs) i'm just i'm here talking about goofy horror movies and stuff and this was very serious to me and i gotta be honest as far as I'm aware, Jerry's the first person that I've I've been friends with, let's say, that has that direct that direct relationship with the Holocaust, and I don't think he realizes how hard that hit me. Um, so, and it did, and I've been doing a lot of research not to obsess over his family, you know. But but I want to know, and I don't want to ask him. I want to find out on my own. I want to know, you know, like, and I I, I want to know these things, and and. Um, I've been educating myself on it, and I appreciate your knowledge. I've learned a lot even just having this chat with you today, and I appreciate it very much. And thank you for 
joining us, and I'd, I'd like to have you back on again. I know there's other movies that there, we can have a little historical talk on some of these things, too. So, uh, But thanks so much for taking this time with us. And Tim, thank you for having me. It's a, it's a pleasure and an honor. I hope I get to meet Jerry. I think he should uh, invite you over to Michigan for a business meeting, and we can all get together. Hear that, Jerry? <laughs> that sounds great. Jerry's like, I've been telling him forever to get up here and you know hang out in the office and stuff, but we are going. Well, to. he needs to make it a he needs to make it a business trip and pay for it. There you go. Now, now we're on, cooking. Jerry. Now we're, that's yeah. exactly the way I like to end this this conversation. Exactly, a free trip to Michigan for me. So, all right, Jamie. Thank in the you. winter time, what could get better? <laughs> right, right. So, all right, Jamie. Thanks a lot, and you guys stay warm up there. And uh, good luck on this semester. And uh, we'll talk to you soon. All right, sounds great. Once again, thank you, Dr. Rate, for taking your time and speaking to myself and the friends and fans of Synapse Films about Triumph of the Will and Stalingrad. By now, I hope you're seeing that there's something deeper going on here about Synapse putting out these films than just a simple release. Now, referring back to the beginning of this episode, you can imagine my astonishment when I was talking to Jerry about my ideas for this World War II episode, and he gave me his response. His response was, my father is a well-known Holocaust survivor. You should ask Jamie Wright if he knows who my father is, which has led me down this rabbit hole that I am now pulling all of you through as well. Now let's continue this conversation, this mental journey, if you will, with Jerry Chandler himself. Hey, Jerry. Hey, Tim. How are you today? I'm, I'm doing okay. All right. Um, so we just just got done listening to Dr. Jamie Wright from the University of Michigan Dearborn, and we were discussing uh, Triumph of the Will, and we were also discussing Stalingrad, uh, two titles, which you guys... When did you, when did you release those films? Do you recall, like, approximately? A long, long time ago of... Like 10 years ago, right? I mean, it was a while. At, at least. Let me, let me walk to our rack. We have a rack of everything we've ever released here. Oh, wow. And I'll take a look on the back. Let's see. Here's Stalingrad we released back in 2006 for Stalingrad. Okay. And then let me find Triumph. Here we go. Here's Triumph. Triumph we released in 2001. 2001, yeah. So I thought that was a very, very, very long time ago. So we've, uh, Jamie Wright and myself have already discussed, uh, you know, that your your father was a survivor of the Holocaust. Um, Now, Dr. Wright and myself were trying to pay a little tribute to your father in the village that he grew up in or was a child in in Poland where all this story started, but I do fear that we did not pronounce the name of your father or the village very well at all. Could you please correct us? Absolutely. Uh, I got to hand it to you guys. You know, most people get their way off. You guys were pretty close. But, you know, just for the interest of accuracy, the name of my father's village was pronounced Nishelsk. Okay. And uh, my father's last name was Tuchendler. Gotcha. Okay. So uh, Tuch meant cloth, 
and a handler was handler. And my family's uh, background on my father's side was they were in the textile industry. Oh, okay. So his name was Moshe Tachendler, and the village was Nishelsk. Okay. Well, we 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 did our we did we did try and we did our darndest. So <laughs> did a damn good job. Thank you, thank you. Um, should you just maybe just say why Synapse put out these two these two films in particular? They each have an interesting story, and uh, I'm sorry if I'm being presumptuous. They're interesting to me. Mm-hmm. Uh, We'll start with Triumph of the Will, since it's the more controversial. Uh, I remember in the early days of Synapse, you know, when we were just starting out, remember, Don had already established himself as a premier film restoration person when he was with Elite Entertainment. And at that time, he made friends with another well, well well-known in Hollywood uh, film restorer by the name of Robert Harris. And uh, Robert does film restoration, but he doesn't have his own label. So he called Don one day and he said, look, I've uh, done a major restoration on this film element of Lenny Riefenstahl's Triumph of the Will. And I can't get any other company to put it out because the subject matter is so controversial. Mm -hmm. Would you like to do it? And Don goes, oh, my God, it's such a famous film. Yes, absolutely, whatever. And then he calls me to tell me about it. And I said, hold on there, little doggy. I said, (laughs) wait a second. I said, do you know what this is? And, you know, listen, I I mean, Don doesn't have a vested interest in the Holocaust, so he wasn't really, you know, that sure of of its place and to be honest neither was i Mm -hmm. but i knew it was very bad it was a (laughs) made by bad people about a bad person right right so i said look Dom, we're just starting out here but you know we can't just put out anything we have to have you know lines that we don't cross so i said to don listen i'm gonna have to run this by my father and if my father you know, says no way, then we have to make a decision. We have to decide, are we going to do it anyways? At which point I will have to leave the company or are we going to honor my father's wish and and just pass on it? So Don said, look, we're not going to do it if your dad doesn't want to do it. You got to give Don credit there. He understood right off the bat. He goes, oh, no, no, no. This is not going to threaten our company. If your father says, no, we're not doing it. I said, thank you. Right. Thank you. Now let me talk to him. So I go to talk to my father and I said, dad, there's somebody out there that has a good element and they want us to do triumph of the will. He goes, oh, my God, that's great. Yeah, do it. I go, well, wait a minute. (laughs) I said, aren't you, you know, weren't you somewhat related? Didn't you have some involvement in the effects of the Holocaust? He said, Jerry, there's no anti-Semitism in Triumph of the Will. It's a propaganda piece, and it shows a lot of Hitler's travel and his speeches and the fawning German people. And that's what it is. It's not a anti-Jewish, anti-Semitism kind of thing. He goes, I don't have a a problem with it. So I went to Don and I said, well, we're, we're about halfway there. He goes, what do you mean halfway? What did your dad say? 
I said, my dad doesn't have any problem with it. He goes, well, that's great. Why are we only halfway there? I said, because I might have a problem with it. I still have to think about this. You know, so I sat there and I thought about it. And I came back to Don. I said, okay, we can do it, but we're going to have to do this in a certain way. He goes, what do you mean? I said, well, I want to have an audio commentary. And I want an audio commentary from somebody who's very learned on the subject and can really put everything in perspective. I don't want neo-Nazis to be able to sit and listen to the commentary and masturbate while they're watching Hitler. Right, right. We want to ruin it for them and 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 have people dis- and have somebody discuss what these people were really like and where this led. And so we did. And uh the I believe he was a film historian his name was Dr. Robert Santoro. I believe he won an award for our uh commentary. And it was wonderful. So we release it, right? A couple things happen. Number 1, Entertainment Weekly does a piece where they compare a small boutique label releasing a controversial film to a gigantic label releasing a a controversial film. And they said, here you have Synapse Films. They're a a tiny speck, you know, (laughs) Uh and they've released this wonderful version of Triumph of the Will with a commentary which puts, you know, the Nazis in their place. It shows Himmler and the guy's talking about all the awful things he did and Hitler and blah, blah, blah. Then you have Image Entertainment puts out Birth of a Nation with no commentary, no description of what it is they're watching, just the pure racism of that film. <laughs> right, 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 yeah. Unadulterated, mm-hmm. so I was proud. Mm-hmm. Then we got about 40 or 50, I'll call them hate mails, although they weren't necessarily hate. Some were from Jewish people who were incredulous, saying, how could you release this? Others were from people saying, how could you release this? They weren't Jewish. They were just saying this, you know, glorifies this. I said, please, please don't judge on the, the surface. Go watch the movie and look at the way we did it. Listen to the commentary. If you are unhappy, send the disc to us for a full refund. And this is what they bought it in the store. I said, we will refund your money. Some people who said, nah, I'm not buying it. I said, well, would it be okay if I sent you a copy for free so you could watch and listen and and see if we did the right thing or the wrong thing? And they all gave me permission. I probably sent out, I think, 21 copies. Every person sent me an apology saying, well done. We're sorry. We judged. This is great. And we haven't heard any complaints since that time, except from the neo-Nazis. First, they called to ask if we would, if they can get a break. I said, not only can you not get a break, you can't even buy them from me. If whoa, whoa, them, whoa, go whoa, to, whoa, 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 whoa. Go to Best Buy. Yeah, well, time out, time out. Not, <laughs> you had neo-Nazis calling you, trying to, trying to, well, they're being cheap bastards, and they were trying to get a deal yeah, from volume you? discounts. Oh, volume my discounts. God. Oh. Oh. Well, anyways, but, so I said, look, I, I said, dude, you're barking up the wrong tree. Sure. We don't support you. We didn't do this for you. And we don't even want to talk to you. So, no. And if you want to buy it, 
I suggest you look at Best Buy, your local Best Buy or whatever, but that's it. So they called twice for the same reason to see if they could get a discount. They got the message after the second call. And then uh, we got some hate mail saying that, you know, uh, the commentary ruined the whole thing. <laughs> Which is exactly what we wanted to hear. So I hope that hate mail was from the neo-Nazis that wanted to get the cheaper yes, price yes, on the first place. Yes, of course it was. Of course it was. Uh -huh. So, okay. And then the last thing is, if you look at the original packaging, I said to Don, not only do we have to do this the right way, but I want to do a donation for every unit we sell. Let's call the Holocaust Memorial you know, in Washington, D.C., actually the same place that found, well, that got that footage of my dad's village. So Don talked to somebody there and said, we're doing this controversial movie and we want to donate a dollar a unit for everyone we sell. So we put it out and it says right on the back of the packaging, uh, you know, there will be a donation made for each, you know, uh -huh. unit sold. Uh -huh. So we, now this is back in, what, 2002, maybe, you know, it's out. So we go to do our first royalty. We send our license or his check and everything. And we do a check for the Holocaust and we get it back. And they go, we don't want your money for this. We don't want to have anything to do with this. And it's like, what? <laughs> right. So I told Don, okay, I don't know who you talk to, but they must not be working there anymore. Mm-hmm. You know, let's put a new cover out and take that off the cover. We can't have that. We're making a donation. Mm -hmm. It's antagonizing the Holocaust Center. And <laughs> right. Uh, so you know that was that didn't make me feel good. But we we changed the cover. And we took that off there, and they didn't want the donation, which was a little unfortunate because it would have been quite substantial by this point. But at the end of the day, I had to make a decision. You know, nothing stays hidden forever. Someone was going to put this out. So if you can put it out and you you have the chance to release it just the way you would want it released in an educational way. So that was the first thing I, I considered. The second thing is, do we learn from hiding from history? I don't think so. We learn from looking at the demagogue and how he seduced people to his way of thinking. And if we could learn anything from triumph, then everybody should see it. It shouldn't be hidden under a rock. Like it never existed because Hitler existed, whether you like it or not. And it wasn't that long ago. I mean, I lost my uncles, my grandparents, everything when they were kids, you know, I never had them. Mm -hmm. Everybody on my father's side was gone. He was the only survivor. So, you know, if we could learn something and you avoid the next Hitler coming down the road, right? then maybe I did a good thing, but who knows, you know, there's going to be some people that are happy. We did it for the right reasons. Some people that'll be happy for the wrong reasons and some people that'll be unhappy for both of those as well. And you can't please everybody. You just got to try and do what you think is right. Right. You know, there's something underlying in this, and you're kind of you're kind of tapping on it too. That I think that in a in a in a subtle maybe way, maybe not so subtle at, at some points, 
you're we're also teaching our own you're just by your not your but by people's reactions to this film you're releasing it and everything else i think people also tend to show their own prejudices so no one asked you they just came at you and i think that that's just something to think about i mean i mean it seems like the 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 hit comes first, and then the questions, <laughs> you know. And and, and, and I, you know, I understand uh, it, Tim, but but it's a learning he, thing, you know. It's one of those things. Yeah, as, as, I mean, that's yeah. human nature. Sure, I, sure. I don't hold it against anybody. You know, there's a saying, and that saying is, "You're not responsible for your first thought. Mm-hmm. You're responsible for your second thought and your first action." Mm-hmm. So. What it means is we're all tribal to a certain extent. So we see somebody that's different. We don't think, oh, that's my fellow American. Our first gut reaction is there's an Arab guy. There's a black guy. There's a white guy. There's a Christian guy. There's a Muslim guy. There's a whatever I'm not. That's what that person is. And we, you know, (laughs) we pull back a little. That's okay because that's our biological tribal survival instinct. But it's our second thought. Wait, why am I saying that? That's clearly one of my fellow Americans, and we all need to be together and strong and care about each other as Americans, not because one is this race or this color or this religion. If we don't take care of ourselves as Americans first and care about all our fellow, we're in big trouble. That's what the world wants. That's our greatest strength over the other countries in this world is the fact that we're made up of so many different people and cultures and we all consider ourselves or should one. And and I think the triumph, anyway. that, that these films also show that if we don't do that, horrors like like this happen. Too. So I mean, <laughs> exactly. yeah, I mean, I, I, I get it. I, I think you know, as as Doctor Wright and me were talking, we we fell under the you know the old cliche, and there's a reason it's a cliche. If you try to forget history, or if you forget it, you're doomed to repeat it. You're kind of doomed to repeat it almost anyway. You better not forget it because it doesn't help. It doesn't help that anything. Santayana, that's the famous philosopher Santayana said that those who forget the past are doomed to repeat it. Hmm. Yes. So, so uh and then so then Stalingrad as well. Stalingrad again is another very very to me anyways interesting story and you know I apologize if I get long-winded on this but these are some serious and interesting uh questions you're asking. Mm-hmm. So let me tell you how Stalingrad came into being. Back when Synapse was starting out, I was still in the steel business and I was working for my father's corporation and I ran a usable steel division. And my office was just down the hall from his office. So I remember him coming down and this is a few years after uh, Triumph and we had a bunch more titles out. And my dad came back, and he's standing in front of my desk, and he drops a folded newspaper onto my desk. And he said, you know, you should do this movie. And he turns around, and he walks away. Well, I don't know how people listening, their relationships with their fathers, but I love my father more than anything in the world. So when my dad asked me to do something, it's literally like God commanding Moses. 
<laughs> so I pick up, I pick up the newspaper. You're no Moses. I yeah, I'm just kidding. I pick up, I, I pick up the newspaper and I, I say, "What did he put down on my desk?" It's the New York Times from whenever, and it's got a long. Actually, it was a half a page with all the columns and everything. It was a review of a European three-part documentary called Stalingrad. And it talks how interesting it is because it primarily, it's about the Battle of Stalingrad and it, it's interviewing some extremely old Russian and German generals who were both there for the, for the battle. A siege or whatever you want to call it. Also, there were other people interviewed. It's just fascinating. So I get a hold. It's made by a company and it's a German television company. They do shows for German TV called Broadview. And I get a hold of them and I said, you know, your documentary is not available in the U.S., but you know, I have interest in the the uh, Second World War, and I was wondering if you would. You know, if we could see it and maybe we, we would release it in North America. So the person sent me the the tapes and I watched it and I said, you know, this is really good. I want to do this. And he flew from Germany to Detroit to meet with us. And I introduced him to my father and everything. His name is Leopold Hoch. And what, just a wonderful guy. And he got to meet us and he decided we were legit. So he licensed it to us. What makes it so interesting, one of the things is this is the first time I had ever heard from the German point of view, the suffering that the Germans endured during the uh, uh, siege of, of, of Stalingrad and everything. And to be perfectly honest, and this may be offensive to people, but it was a thrill for me because all I got, all I ever heard was the Jewish suffering right. because of what happened to my family. Mm -hmm. So to begin to hear that, you know, other people suffered too. The perpetrators of, of the Holocaust did a lot of suffering. That was kind of thrilling for me. <laughs> so I enjoyed hearing that. Um, we, we released it. It was nominated for an international Emmy and it really is great. And, you know, of course I got a copy of our version for my father and, he really liked it. Um, but after that, he did a, Leopold did a second documentary. So this documentary was on the destruction of Dresden. So I watch it and they got six pilots from the squadron that flew in and was bombing. And they interviewed all these uh, so German civilians and, and people in the government and the, even the one uh, British pilot was saying, if I had known, I would have turned my plane around and we, we never should have bombed. And, and Dresden, the Germans were saying, eh, it was at our art center, our cultural center, and they, they had had no military value and the, they, the allies knew it. And they came and they killed these people, whatever. And it was a great documentary. And I said to back to Leopold, I said, there's no way in hell I'm doing this. Right. <laughs> Jenny, why not? I said, who in the world gives a shit about German suffering? I said, I'm sorry to say this to you, but I think they bombed Dresden out of spite because of everything the Germans did. The millions of people, they, they didn't just kill Jews. Right. They killed gypsies. They killed 
some Catholics. They killed, you know, whoever. I mean, they killed lots and lots and lots of people, is my point. Right. Not just Jews. Right. I said, there's nobody outside of Germany, in my opinion, wants to see a documentary on something that happened to Germans and a bunch of Germans sitting around going, oh, poor us. I said, it's just, it's a bad sell, <laughs> you know? <laughs> outside of Germany, at least. I was going to say, it's like trying to uh, trying to uh, sell a movie that glorifies uh, Gacy or Bundy. And makes them into heroes and tries to tell the story from their point of view. You know, if you remember at the end of that Bundy movie, how he's screaming as they're jamming the cotton up his ass before they stick him in the electric electric chair. Who felt sorry for him? Right, <laughs> you right, know? exactly, yeah. I mean, Germany in World War II was literally a country of uh, Ted Bundy. Right. <laughs> I, I don't think the the way you describe that documentary, it's going to play outside the border of Germany at all. Because, well, as you were telling the, about what it was about, that's what was going through my head. I was like, screw them. Oh, oh, did your poor museum get bombed? Well, you asked for exactly. it. You know, you exactly. You begged for it. It's like, yeah, yeah. Yeah, exactly. I mean... <laughs> You know, they they were trying to keep Jewish artifacts mm -hmm. so they could make their museum of, uh, what they call it, uh, extinct peoples. Where was it? Was that going to be in Dresden, too? Did we bomb the, uh, the lot? You were mm -hmm. going to build that? I mean, you know. But, you know, but you got to be careful because one of my best friends in the entire world is German. I'm the godfather to his son. His wife is wonderful. I mean, they're, you know, he's a great person, and I'm sure there's plenty of other good... I mean, you know, this is his parents and grandparents' generation. I mean, would you want to be held responsible for what your father might have done or your grandfather? Absolutely not. None of us do. So, and, and Leopold's a very wonderful guy, you know? So... They have their point. Not all Germans were Nazis, and a lot of good Germans, I'm sure, died. I'm sure of it. <laughs> I can't prove it, right. but I'm sure of it. Right. Uh, you know, so you can't just sit there, and you got to be careful. You know how to how to talk to these people. I have no axe to grind with uh, Leopold. Right. I said, look, man, I don't think it'll play well. It's too sensitive to the German suffering, and and most people are pretty happy. I mean, they're going to watch it. For, they're going to like it for the wrong reason. Right, right. Yeah, you sort of play to the wrong audience. You, uh, that's what yeah, it's going to do. Yeah, you don't do. want to yeah. put something out where people can sit there and, and glorify over the suffering of others, even if the other people weren't necessarily nice people. It's just not the kind of thing Synapse, Don and I, you know, you and Noah, it's not what we want to put out in the world. Right, right. So, but now, now one last thing about Stalingrad, why did we do it? Even though it did tell from the German point of view, because it also told from the Russian point of view, and we were on the Russian side in world war two and the stories both sides tell are incredibly fascinating. I believe the documentary was shot in 2003 or so, maybe a little later. I'm not sure. But the last time I talked to Leopold, he told me he could never recreate it because most of those generals on both sides are have passed away. So, again, it's a priceless documentary on the Battle of Stalingrad. And it's just, and of course, 
again, what, what really caught my dad's eye in, in the uh, was the cause of the article in the New York Times was the fact that this documentary, Stalingrad, could not have been made until after the Soviet Union fell because all the archival footage of Stalingrad in the three-part documentary was all from the Soviet archives, which were opened up only after the Soviet Union fell. It was the Russians, not the Soviets, that allowed uh, Leopold and his crew to get into those archives and, and you know, use the films taken during the siege for his documentary. Those were banished. Nobody had ever seen those until Leop until the fall of the Soviet Union and Leopold getting permission to get in there. Mm -hmm. Hmm. So for no other reason than that, it's a unique one-of-a-kind documentary and everybody should have it and see it. And uh, that's what I have to say about that. Well, I... I my thought is is this, and I touched on this when I was talking to uh, to Doctor Rate as well. That you know, it's funny because uh, uh, as we were doing the interview, uh, Jamie mentioned his grandmother was a Polish Catholic who went to went to church twice a week. She was very very religious, you know. And I am German, English, and believe it or not, Slovenian. My name is Slovenian. Uh, Catholic, brought up Catholic. He was brought up Catholic. We are now doing this podcast to educate people all together. And your father was a successful businessman. You're a successful businessman. And out of all of that horror, out comes this. We win. We win. He loses, and we win. And and yeah. the the combination of all of us putting this together from all those different backgrounds just shows that it just shows how we win, you lose. Hate? No, 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 no. I got yeah. enough anger in the world. I don't need hate to go along with it. <laughs> you know. So I, hey, Tim, you're, yes, you're absolutely right. I just wish we had a few more of my family members on the podium with us. <laughs> Agreed. Yeah. Agreed. But we're going to make sure that this doesn't get forget forgotten, at least for now. I totally understand. And uh, I I really appreciate you explaining this story by Jerry because it's not an easy subject for you. I know it's not. I don't like to I don't like to poke around with this too much, you know, with you. I know it's very personal and I really appreciate you being honest and coming out and telling people this. I hope it answers some questions that maybe some people who never asked you may have had the answers are right here. Why these films were put out, why they are important. Um, I, I couldn't say much more than what's been said on this episode about that right now, but I definitely appreciate you uh, and your father. I appreciate the fact that we can actually today uh, come together and put this all together and to remind people not to let this shit happen again. So, uh, please. Yes. So, all right, Jerry. <laughs> thank. Yes. Yes. Exactly. So, thank you. Thank you very much. And I know this is a bit of a different episode, but I promise next time we'll get back to fun, fun and frivolity, <laughs> and and all other good stuff. So, I appreciate it, and we'll talk to you next time. All right. Thanks, everybody. Talk to you soon. 
So there you have it. There's a story of how Triumph of the Will in Stalingrad became part of the Synapse Films catalog. Again, I know this episode was long, but I hope you found it enlightening and rewarding. I'd also like to once again thank Dr. Rate for coming on the show and especially thank you, Jerry, for opening up about your personal life a little bit and about your family's history with the Holocaust. Nothing can change what happened to your family and millions of other ones, but I hope that this podcast finds its way into the world and does a little bit of good. If you'd like more information on Jerry's father's story, you can read the book Three Minutes in Poland by Glenn Kurtz. Also, there is a documentary film version of the story that I do believe has been playing at, or played at Sundance. Uh, that is called Three Minutes a Lengthening. And I do believe it is narrated by Helena Bonham Carter. Uh, I have not seen the film yet, uh, but I have heard about it, heard it's done very, very well. I am looking forward to seeing it myself. If you have any more questions regarding this episode, any other episode, or a comment about the podcast, or a question, email me at tim at synapsefilms.com. Tim at synapsefilms.com. It was an honor and a pleasure to be your tour guide on this journey into all things Synapse Films. Until we meet again, be safe, be good to each other, and be right back here next time for the next episode of the Synapse Films Podcast. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Synapse Films Podcast. We couldn't be here without you, the fans. So from the bottom of our hearts, we thank you for your continuing support of Synapse Films. I'm tired of being upset, always want something to never get. Lots of illusion, love the dream.